Omega Tau. Science and Engineering in your headphones. Hello. New episode here. Well, Mark is here with a new episode. Hello, hello. So, um, earlier this year, I was in the Netherlands for business and uh, took the occasion to meet with Igor Nikolic. And uh, he works as a professor at the TU Delft. And he works on modeling and understanding the behavior of socio-technical systems. These are systems that uh, are built from people and technical entities. And many of those are core to how our world works. And some of them might have to be changed quite a bit to become more sustainable. And so how do you deterministically change such complex systems? That's what he's working on. And we had a I think very, very interesting conversation. It's really one of my favorite uh, conversation style episodes. You know, doing stuff <laughs> like flying an aircraft is, of course, better. But uh, in terms of conversations, this really was one of my favorites. And so I hope you enjoy it. Um, before we get started, just a brief note. Um, as we have announced before, on July 5, there is the Omega Tau Summer Barbecue Meetup in the Stuttgart area um, to um, find out exactly where um, we meet. Um, please go to omegataupodcast.net slash BBQ, Bravo, Bravo, Quebec. Um, and uh, there is a map and the actual location where we're going to meet. It's a bit hard to explain without actually showing it. Again, it's in the Stuttgart area. Uh, please bring, um, you know, food and something to drink and we'll meet and chat and uh, the usual stuff. Um, if you are in doubt about the weather on the day, please make sure you follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Um, if the weather is so bad that we have to cancel... Um, then we're going to let you know there. All right. All for now, let's get started with Igor introducing himself. Well, uh, my name is Igor Nikolic. I work as an associate professor at the Delft University of Technology at the Faculty of Technology, Policy and Management in the Department of Multi-Actor Systems. Now, that's okay. a long <laughs> academic credential. Um, What's maybe interesting to mention, I'm an engineer, yeah. chemical and bioprocess engineer. I've uh, been building models and simulations for the past, uh, okay, more years than I dare to admit on air. Um, and have always been very interested in, about sustainable development and the role of people in technology and how do they affect the transition of the technology and how do we use that tech and people's behavior to actually, you know, Unmesh the world because uh, mm -hmm. we are in deep trouble. I think that's more than clear. Yeah, and so from there, I've uh, spent after my master's, I spent quite some years doing environmental science, University of Leiden, and then since I wanted to do a PhD, I moved to University of Delft. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. where I spent uh, my time doing uh, thinking about better ways to model complex socio-technical systems, mm -hmm. and approached it very much in evolutionary fashion from the complex adaptive systems field um, with this idea that if you want to study how socio-technical evolving systems behave and change, then your tooling has to be complex, evolving, and socio-technical, right? So coming from 
things like control theory, you know that you cannot have a linear controller on a nonlinear or a chaotic mm -hmm. system. So the same, I believe, applies to modeling. And so from there, I've been modeling all sorts of things and trying to shape people's behavior through models. Mm -hmm. And more and more, I've been uh, moving towards social sciences, and that's where we are now. Right. And so for me, it's an interesting... Uh, topic because it's at this boundary of social science and technical models. We'll see that the models that you talk about and you build are quite different. Um, yes. Yeah. So, but th there are a couple of um, commonalities, right? You already mentioned the the term complexity. Uh, maybe we should start uh, by more or less defining what that means, so people have you know a starting point. Right. Excellent. So the. Uh, there are multiple ways to think about complexity and complex data systems. So traditionally, complexity uh, really has sort of erupted into, I guess, human awareness uh, through the Santa Fe Institute, uh, mm -hmm. to the Next Institute. And that was driven by physics and mathematics and started with chaos, bifurcations, dynamical systems, stuff like that. Yeah, the pendulum, everybody knows, which you can predict after whatever three exactly. springs. Yeah. Exactly. And cellular uh, automata, all of those things. Right, Yes. Uh, so these are interesting interesting things, and they tend to focus very much on the physics and maths of it. Mm -hmm. And very slowly, uh, people started realizing, wait, but there is also a different kind of complexity, very much the social and socio-technical complexity. And it was really the work of uh, Joshua Epstein, um, and this is, what, 60s, 70s, 80s, that um, started talking about cultures, about the, the famous Anasazi model, where he uh, studied how the Anasazi Indians in the southwest, uh, mm -hmm. uh, around Santa Fe, clearly, uh, actually how the culture has evolved and changed and why they disappeared and what happened. And so from there, it was like, hey, there is something interesting going there. And it, it's, I don't know how hard this statement is, but uh, you can see the sort of the American style of complexity science, which is very numerical, lots of... Mm -hmm. Uh, simple agents, swarm-like, uh, you know, ant colony optimization kind of thinking. Yeah. And there tends to be the European school, generally hand-wavingly, which is far more richer agents, more social, more um, maybe less less mathematical, but more open to interpretation, multiple perspectives, um, you know, incompatible rationalities and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and so... so um, We use a lot of the complexity language. We do take their meaning, but we do consider it in a slightly different context. Not in the mathematical one. Well, I mean, we will use the tools clearly, but sure. it's not the math is not the focus. The focus is mm -hmm. how do I understand the social and the specifically socio-technical context. But but the commonality between the two views is still that there is it's hard to predict. Yes, and so you you yeah that's one limitation, and that there are like. For example, in, in, in systems engineering, complexity arises from the interaction of components of a system. And that is also true if you have agents and social stakeholders, right? So there is a lot of commonality as well. Oh, absolutely. And I would argue that the, 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 the highest complexity actually does come out in social systems. Yeah. Uh, because if you talk about complex adaptive systems, yeah. it is in, indeed the emergence, right? So the yes. creation of structure over yeah. time through interactions with heterogeneous agents That heterogeneity and ad adaptivity yeah. is, that's what humans are all about. I mean, one thing that I, and we'll talk about this in much more detail, but one thing I imagine uh, is that in a, in a technical 
complex system, you can probably at least agree on the rules that the single actors follow. It's the end example yes, or exactly. the cellular automata or even in economics, the rational, you know, the cell, I don't know exactly the word, but the, the you know, yeah. maximizing your own personal benefit. But in a real social or socio-technical system, I guess different people act by rules that you may not even know. Exactly, and which they might not even know themselves. That's true. Right? Yes. There are psychologists that Biased, would claim yeah. that uh, that m most of our conscious uh, effort is spent rationalizing decisions that we did in the yeah. past. It's like the two brain, the system two and system one, right? What right. by Kahneman, right? Right, right. Yes, yeah. uh, exactly. And so the fascinating thing in that I, as an engineer, have found in social sciences is that you know you know that you have unreliable data. Mm -hmm. You know that you have observer-dependent, context-dependent, subjective stuff. There is mm -hmm. just no way around that. And what I found fascinating is when social science is done right, then you will see a very high level of methodological rigor, which, let's say, in engineering, we funnily enough do not need because nature has mm -hmm. its unified ontology. There are laws of nature. And you no, know, it, it works or it doesn't, right? Yep. Here, you have to be very clear about why and what, which assumptions. So it's far more difficult in that sense, I mm -hmm. find. Um, and, of course, the famous uh, incoherency or inconsistency problem of social sciences is that there is really no unified theory or maybe there even cannot be a unified theory of the human mind because we are multi-perspective beings, yeah. right? We change. And which means that, you know, if you put a sociologist and a psychologist in a room, there will be a fight. <laughs> and, you know, one, I would, you know, from a complex systems perspective, I would say society emerges from lots of interactions right. at the psychological level. Yeah. But these theories are simply incompatible, or at least just have such different starting points. Yeah. And, that and, and when you say emerge, then you mean in the sense of emergence, where you absolutely. cannot necessarily predict the, the, the behavior of the whole from understanding the behaviors of the elements that make up the whole. Exactly. Right. And, and where the... Word prediction is, is is tricky because with emergence, what are you trying to predict? Let's say a classical example I like to use is your traffic jam, right? It's mm -hmm. a rare phenomenon that you have never experienced in your life, right? No. Well, Except, I'm from Stuttgart, yes. Oh, yeah, I right. do it every day. That's what I mean. So <laughs> can you predict at which exact location your car yeah. is going to be tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock? Yeah, no. You cannot. Yeah. Can you predict that there will be a file or a stau or a traffic jam at 9 o'clock? Yes. yes. And so the pattern, the structure itself is actually quite predictable. So emergent systems can be hugely predictable. Look right. at a swarm. Right, 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 right. It, but it's a statistical prediction. Well, yeah, it's a pattern, right? Yeah. And so we're talking mm -hmm. about patterns both in statistical sense, but also in a, in a sense that human mind is a pattern matcher, right? I mean, we are neural networks. We latch yeah. onto patterns and we understand the world in terms of patterns. So emergence makes a lot of sense because it is a consistent pattern that has properties of its own that are not yeah. directly related to the properties individual. Right. So then let me rephrase what I said before. You can make predictions about maybe the system as a whole, like, for example, the traffic jam at nine. Mm -hmm. uh, you can predict any time in Stuttgart. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but you cannot take the, the rules by which the elements act, assuming they have a consistent set of rules, yes. which is a question in itself, uh, and then from that kind of integrate up exactly, and, and come up with a prediction of the system's whole behavior. Exactly right, because emergence is a process, right. not a thing. 
Mm-hmm. So it is a, emergence is the process of becoming of a pattern, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than that it's a thing that is that is. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so, so we like to make a, a sort of semantic dif- differ- dif- differentiation between complicated and complex. Right. And I would say a traditional engineering system, let's say a seven four seven, is a tremendously complicated but not complex device. Why do I mean that? Because the parts, and you can argue there's at least a million parts in 747, yeah. and if you count the transistors and the gates in the chips, it's up to billion. Yeah. But there is exactly one configuration that they fit together. You change one or two logic gates in that chip, and that thing comes crashing down. Yes. And the uh, complicated systems in general are tremendously difficult to comprehend and to understand. But it's possible. It, they are knowable because yeah. we put them together in a specific way. There is a finite end state yeah. that it operates in. Now, that's, of course, strictly not true because airplanes, you know, vibration modes. You yeah, know, yeah, it, yeah. But that's, you know, whereas complex systems will often be far easier to intuitively understand because they grow into these patterns that are very consistent, mm-hmm. robust. Mm-hmm. But the actual rules of the game might be unclear because you often only see the result of the emergent pattern. You do not know why it comes to be. And that is the problem, right? Often it is, right? So a nice example of this is the swarming of birds, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, well, physical, I don't know. It's a social phenomenon. It was only in the 80s, I think in 83, that that Boyd proposed the first model, one of the first famous agent-based models of Mm -hmm. swarming when he said, oh, look, I can take these three very simple rules of, you know, cohering together, avoiding collisions, and aligning myself with my friends that actually grow into a pattern of a swarm. Yeah. And that is, that really took a long time before that became apparent. So in some sense, um, I I recently came across a term which I already forgot again. It's almost, I think it's about... I, I know the result and I have to find the rules by which the result is being constructed. It's like an inverse problem or something. Right. So, well, you're, you're really just sort of deconstructing it, I guess, in these. And it's the, I'm thinking indeed, what was the term? And so I, the point is that if you yeah. know the rules, you can, as I said before, you can integrate up and then see maybe the behavior. But if you only have the result, there might be many different ways how it can be formed. And so it's much harder to find, to, to like, to go back and find the rules that make up that result as opposed to going forward, taking rules and integrating up. Exactly right. And it is indeed that uh, you cannot exclude the uh, existence of multiple rule sets exactly. that generate the same the pattern. The same pattern, yes, yes, exactly. Which is a bane, but it's also a boon because it means that if you yes. want to achieve multiple, a specific kind of emergent pattern, let's say a sustainable world, yeah. Right. To me, sustainability really is an emergent pattern yeah, at the yeah. global level. Yeah. There are infinite ways to be sustainable. Yeah. Equally infinite number of ways to be unsustainable. Unsustainable. So there is not a single solution. Yeah. And you see that, for example, a lack of that understanding, a lot of the debates. Oh, it has to be hydrogen. No, it has to be wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, who, no, it has to be a whole lot of stuff. Especially it has to be consistent and lead to the behavior we want. And exactly. that is exactly the problem you're working on, right? How exactly. do I set up the rules? Yes. But, you know, that, that lead to a desirable, let's say we agree on what is desirable, right. outcome. Um, right. All right. Yeah. So so let's deconstruct uh, mm-hmm. the word socio-technical system. Yes. So, um, well, you do that. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> okay. So the term itself is somewhat loaded, at least in social sciences. There was a lot of uh, social technical work by Hughes and others in the 
late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. um, which was very much focused on the firm and stuff like that. Now, so that... The, the firm? The firm organization, the ah, company, right. uh, stuff uh, like Organizational. That. Organizational, yes, yeah, okay. sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but that somehow died um, and never really continued, even though it's still a bit of a, for some people, a bit of a term that really only means that. Mm-hmm. But what we say is, no, look, if you look at the world outside, there is a very clear physical component, right? We are physical beings. Our, our minds are made of physical matter. We must follow uh, rules of nature, right? I cannot decide that gravity yeah. doesn't apply. Yes. Um, and through all these interactions, we as humans have constructed two interesting things, right? We are tool makers. And we organize ourselves to be more productive, to be more safe, to be more healthy. And we do that through physical devices, through technology, but also through social technology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, insurance, for example, is a social technology. It mm-hmm. has to be invented. A bank had to be invented. Mm-hmm. And money. Money had to be invented, exactly. Money had to be invented. And these sets of rules, right? We can often refer to them as institutions, right? So habits, mm-hmm. norms, culture, formal, ru- you know, formal regulations and laws. These institutions have to come to be over time, and they help us provide large-scale technical components, right? We are here in the Netherlands right now. You would not be here if you would not have pumps, if you would not right. be able to get organized to mm-hmm. create large dams. And mm-hmm. um, so you need both organizational, social, but also individual components to interact with each other and interact with the physical world, mm-hmm. either in a natural sense, as you know, the CO2 or the sunshine coming in, or the artifacts that we construct. And these things... Both of these things are locked in a co-evolutionary race or a co-evolutionary process. Mm-hmm. So thinking, ideas, thoughts, rules of behavior construct technical entities, and the presence of technical entities yeah. shapes how we think about the world. Yes, yes. So we are co-shaping our own culture with the physical world and the way we structure it. And if you want to understand sustainability or the transitions that we need to do, or even just how to manage these things, mm-hmm. you cannot exclude human behavior mm-hmm. like you cannot exclude technical components. Yeah. One of my favorite anecdotes, it was, uh, I don't have the exact date, but uh, as European electricity markets were becoming a thing, um, uh, interconnecting capacity was being built, mm-hmm. which technically is a great thing because it balances yeah, yeah. You know, the grid. And there were at some point a contract with the, between large producers and consumers in Germany and Netherlands. Now, contracts were drawn up, uh, you know, money was being paid. It was all sorted as far as the lawyers were concerned. And suddenly, Belgium starts pretty much melting. So the guy sitting in his control chair in Belgium suddenly starts seeing his grid completely overload. He's mm-hmm. like, where the heck is this coming from? I, I, what? Well, you know, uh, Ohm's law, electricity goes where it has to go. Mm-hmm. They just forgot to tell the Belgians because <laughs> at that point in time, the grid was such through the interconnection that that's where the most current went to. Mm-hmm. And that just underlines that, that you have to understand the physics yeah. and the fact that you're contracting right. both right. at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, this, this fact that the systems we create then 
basically have a feedback loop onto how we think in our culture. I mean, the mobile phone is a great example yes. for that, right? Um, and of course, the car is because that gave all this idea of, of, you know, having to be mobile. People weren't mobile before. Exactly. And so, yeah. That's interesting, right? If you mentioned like transport, of course, is, is so important. Um, there's a saying that uh, cities, uh, well, let's say human or, you know, dwellings evolve around the dominant transport modus mm -hmm. of their time. Yeah. So look at, um, you know, where we are right now, right? We're in, in The Hague, close to Delft. Ancient cities, they have you know, been around for thousands of years. And the dominant form of transport then was foot, mm -hmm. horse, and maybe if you're lucky, a cart. And maybe a bit boat, right? With all the Well, of course, in Netherlands, of yeah. course, we have the boats, yeah. clearly, yes. Yeah. In this case, they were also horse-drawn. Yeah. Right? Ah, or or people-drawn, okay. even, in some mm -hmm. cases. So you have narrow, twisty streets. You had... Things are very compact, have a clear city core, yeah. require also to have walls because of the social issues. So you compact yourself even more into, into the inner core of the city because it's in versus out. Yeah. Now look at United States, yeah, yeah. right? Starting in the, uh, you know, 200 years ago and you see where the rail crosses a road is a logical place to be at because yeah, yeah. that's where intermodality happens. Yeah. Thus you set up a city and then the most rational thing to do is to lay out a grid Yeah, because that's by far the most efficient one, and you see completely different cities. Yeah, yeah. and whether one is superior to, to the other, I mean, I have a preference, but they are just a product of their time and their technology. Yeah, and and it's also kind of the the question which one is better. It, it's not even a relevant question. You can't change it. You're not going to make Delft Square exactly gritty, right? It's not going to happen anyway. Exactly. So, exactly. And it's the question of how do you deal with. That path dependency, and, and there it comes, another ah, that, complex. That's the word. Yeah. That's, the, that's the word, right? So the yeah. uh, essential property of all complex systems is the path dependency. So what does that mean? So that means is that the state of a system um, and its future states are strongly dependent on where it comes from. Mm -hmm. In physics, we call these things non-holonomical systems. Okay. Right? So uh, a wonderful example of such a system is the Foucault pendulum. I think it's, is it in Louvre, I believe, in France, where they have the huge one. Uh, and so this is a very large, long pendulum yeah. with a very heavy ball yeah. that just goes back and forth. And because the earth slowly spins, yeah. it spins away from it and it will make a full circle yeah. in 24 hours. It's basically a kind of clock. It's a clock. Exactly. So even in the physical world, these things happen. So where you start and how you move determines where you are or where you're going, mm -hmm. which is kind of obvious, right? Yeah. Now with human systems, because we are... No, okay, so... Taking a step back, evolution, of course, of which we are yeah. one of the many steps in you know its long history, right. uh, is yeah. more and more variation on less and less themes, as it's often said. Right? So more and more variation on less and less. Okay. I never heard right. that one. Right. So the idea is once evolution figures out by accident a solution that works, yeah. it keeps on self-amplifying that solution because right. yeah. if I'm functional, I have a high fitness and produce offspring, they are going to be similar to me. Yeah. So once I invent a backbone, vertebrae, then suddenly I'm so much more efficient than invertebrates mm -hmm. because I don't have to carry my uh, house. I don't have to have water right. yeah. for, for structure. Yeah, I can yeah. just stand up or at least move around. Yeah. And therefore, if you look at, for example, all the mammals, we all have the same number of vertebrae in our back. But then we vary around that is what you're saying. Exactly. So yeah. we are varying and we're adapting to our niches. Yeah. So the, but that history is heavily entrenched, mm -hmm. right? The, Uh, the classical biological example of the, um, uh, the is it the laryngeal nerve of the giraffe? 
And there's a wonderful video of Richard Dawkins doing this. Uh, so there is a nerve that goes from our brain to the larynx. Mm -hmm. And I'll double check if it's the larynx, but I think it goes to the throat. Uh, but that nerve goes around the aorta mm -hmm. and goes back up. Mm -hmm. And that's just a spandrel, as they call it in biology, just a, just a remnant of some random accident somewhere, but it doesn't hurt, it's fine. Yeah. In a giraffe, that nerve is 14 meters long. Right. <laughs> it goes from the brain all the way down the rota and all the way back to the throat. Yeah. Is that sensible? No. I mean, there is your reason, there is your argument against intelligent designer because no sane engineer will <laughs> ever no do that. There's no intelligence about that's, that. No, that's just <laughs> stupid. But hey, it's history, right? Yeah. So you keep on reinforcing where you come from. Yeah. Now, with cultural systems, that's even stronger because unlike biological systems, we do not only have vertical information transfer. So you and I do not have to have a baby to, 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 to have this conversation. With right? vertical, you mean intergenerational, intergenerational yeah, in offspring. Time. Yeah. Right, yeah. From, from, from parents to offspring. Yeah. That's how you very slowly accumulate knowledge, yeah. knowledge with quotes here. Yeah, yeah. But we have horizontal yes. information transfer. And it's not, the meme versus gene thing, right? Right, but it's not just versus, it's meme no, no, and no, no, gene, yeah, 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 right? Yes, yeah. And, uh, you know, meme right. being a contested thing, it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But okay. yeah, it's that idea of, a, yeah. And so... The thing there, of course, is that the speed of that information transfer is incredibly yes. fast. And it further reinforces history, right? Because we tell each other stories, we believe things, and we convince each other to believe things. And because of that, we do more things, which just reinforces our beliefs. And it just gets this, this amount of feedback and lock-in is incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we humans, because of the way how we wired, experience tremendous... Um, a sense of sunk cost, which is yes. another nice example in, <laughs> in economics, you know, yeah. throwing good money after, bad. after the bad. Yeah. And nature, in a certain way, doesn't care about it. It builds forth, of course, on the history. But hey, if you happen to be a dino and, you know, you were dominant kind of life on this planet and, you know, pla and a comet hits you, well, nature says, tough luck, somebody else gets to try. But we keep on building coal power plants because, well, that's somebody's career is riding on the fact that that project has to be finished and does not know or care whether that's the best thing for the society. And so we keep on doing things just because, well, oh my God, tradition. In Germany, we have to say Tradition statt Vernunft. Yeah. It's like something I, you typically apply to clubs or other <laughs> right, organizations right. like that. Right. And so we are very much, you know, history locked into histories. Yeah. And that reinforcement really makes it so interesting and what really fascinates me and the reason why I you know, study industrial systems infrastructure systems is that there unlike in let's say fast moving consumer goods you have this extreme physical path dependence we cannot just decide not to use roads anymore True. we yes. cannot just mm -hmm. decide not to use electricity yeah. anymore yeah. Yeah. and switch everything to let's say hydrogen you cannot yeah. do that yeah, yeah. These are incredible amount of capital expenditure, just yes. expensive things. They take forever to build. They're yeah. slow things. Yeah. You know, your average chemical plant, once you build it, will be there for 50 years at least. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's one decision locks you in a path for a very long time. Yeah. Is that good or bad? Because the, you could argue it's good because it gives you time to think where you want to make your next big strategic investment, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's, of course, bad because you get only at very long intervals, you get a, a chance to make a decision, right? So that's the drawback. Right. And so the difficulty there is that humans don't operate at that scale. 
So it's intergenerational there, at least Already. in terms of the roles you play in an organization. Exactly, right? Yeah. Because your average, what, average uh, number of years you work for a firm, what is it, four to five years maybe, something like that. Yeah. Um, and manager has to score and then move on. Yeah, yeah. And yes. if that score means inv making that investment through, yeah. that's going to stick there. Yeah. Um, and there is so much to be gained by a short-term yeah. profit. And you know we're just not wired for these kinds of yeah. skills, and that I sometimes refer to it as the monkey space. People, people, you know, there's various researchers that study sort of human psychology, and we we come down to things like uh, the famous Dunbar's number that uh, that that humans can deal with about 150 people. Mm -hmm. Now, this is of course a very rough estimate, sure. so yeah, it can be twice that, but not a thousand. So yeah. 150 is us. Everybody mm -hmm. else is them. Them, yeah. And, you know, a kid being hit by a car in my neighborhood, which is horrible, is still far more horrible than 100,000 dead people from a tsunami somewhere yeah, yeah. away. That's a well-known uh, phenomenon. Right. So that means that I cannot think about large numbers. I'm yes. not meant for that. Yes. Now, psychologically, in terms of time, we are very good at fairly immediate reactions, right? That yellow mm -hmm. stripey thing over there <laughs> wants eat to eat me. Yeah. I have to act now. Yeah. And that's not deliberation, that's instinctive response. Yeah. And you have to because that's what evolution has selected us for. Yeah, and the body does that kind of mechanically with exactly. adrenaline and stuff, right? So, exactly. Yeah. And um, we understand space intuitively in the amount of you know, things like walking. Mm -hmm. Walking an hour is five kilometers. Can yeah. you imagine walking a whole day? Yeah. Most people can't. Yeah. You know, oh, I've walked a long time. It's a half an hour walk. No. But that's like five, 10, 15 kilometers. Yeah. Um, whereas the issues of sustainability concern tens of thousands of kilometers, planet yeah. scale, yeah. involve nine billion people. I mean, what kind of number is that even? Yeah, Can yeah. you even think about that kind of number? Yeah, yeah. It involves hundreds to thousands of years. Yeah. And we are simply not equipped psychologically to deal with these things and that statement is true for the for the individual but it is also true for the organizations we create which maybe isn't accidental it's because we maybe as an individual can't do it so we build organizations which are kind of short-term focused because that's how what we can think exactly yeah. even though you see that a uh, lot of the societal technology if you wish uh, has been invented to deal yeah. with these things like sure. assurances yeah. like uh, yeah. pensions yeah uh, sure. So we do try. We do try, yeah. But the, you know, humans are just too short-lived with that. I mean, I mean but the climate change is the example where it fails, exactly. right? So, and we'll talk about that. Exactly. But um, there you have both problems at the same time. You have a huge scale. Yes. You have a long time. And you have many, many involved parties with different, uh, like, interests. Exactly. Right? And so that's, that different makes it… Different interests, different rationalities, yeah. completely incompatible Stories. ontologies, yes. right? Yeah, they yeah. believe fundamentally disjointed things. Yeah. And for many of these things, you can't even argue that one is right and one is wrong. Yeah. For many, you can, but yeah. See, this brings me to, to, to a, a question. So, for mm -hmm. example, um, so when we think about how uh, engineers or physicists, scientists, real scientists, <laughs> I've just made, yeah, yeah. made the joke, um, uh, how they define a system, then one important characteristic is its boundary, right? Yes. You define where the scope ends at which you look when you try to understand how something works. Yes. And um, is that is that a question you're asking yourselves for the, yourself for these uh, socio-technical systems as well? And can can you even reasonably define a boundary? How do you do that? That's an excellent question. So um, 
clearly there is no well-defined boundary. There mm-hmm. never can be because all of these things are complex adaptive systems that are porous, open, adaptive learning. However, clearly, as you mentioned, when you're modeling or you're trying to understand something, you have to draw a boundary. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the answer to boundary question really is the main difference, I would say, in modeling, in engineering and technical sciences. That's the goal of modeling uh, in, in, in so let's say, hard sciences versus the goal of modeling in more of the socio-technical. So if you are modeling in a technical sense, you're trying to make a prediction about the functioning of a yep. device or something which you can then validate mm-hmm. against a real-world experiment. You can make an experiment, exactly. The experiment, yep. you yep. validate, and you see how good your model is. The, the moment that people become involved and they care or they believe or they want some outcome or the other, you cannot do classical validation because if I'm modeling you as a stakeholder in a decision-making model, moment I communicate by outcomes, you will behave differently and yourself, you know, my model is self-invalidating. Mm-hmm. So my goal is not so much a prediction, but my goal is increasing insight. And so because my goal is insight... What is insight? Insight is a better, better gut feeling of the person making a decision into okay. what the world is doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to help people avoid the obviously or not so obviously dumb things, mm-hmm. right? Because human minds think in shortcuts. We run models in our own mind, right? We have a theory of mind of how the world, other people think and how the world works, which is often wrong. So intuition in complex systems is just a bad yeah. advisor. So you want devices. You want deterministic, repeatable devices such as models to help you think. Right? Steve, Steve Jobs have this, has, has a saying where he says, computers are bicycles for the mind. Right, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's exactly, so that's what's really spot on because it's a way to help think, think it through. What does it mean? And so the goal of modeling to me is insight and that means that the boundaries and the mechanisms that go into a model have to make sense to the person that has to use them. And so it's a socially negotiated <laughs> Uh, definition of the boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so that brings us back to the comment I made about my great respect to high quality social science, which is so methodological. Mm-hmm. So we have to be very, very precise about why are we assuming things, which assumption are we making, and be super explicit about those yeah. because we know we are standing on quicksand. But how do you uh, square the make sense to the stakeholders with what you said before, which is that often the intuition is un- is is a bad uh, a bad uh, a bad guide, yeah, bad guide, yeah. Because you, you you may have to build a model that is you can, in some sense, objectively justify mm-hmm. whatever exactly that means. You yes. can run experiments, simulations, whatever, and yeah. you figure out it kind of works. Um, but it's unintuitive to the to the stakeholders, but they have to accept it, right? right. So that I, I can imagine that's a challenge. Yes, and that's that brings us very much to the socio-technical modeling, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the, you know, the things that I really think we must must do. So, how does this then work? Let's say, um, so I'm currently involved in a project with a bunch of um, uh, infrastructure providers here in the port of Rotterdam, mm-hmm. and for them, the question is: Okay, we're going to get a lot of electricity coming from wind parks, mm-hmm. and it's going to enter onto the west side of Rotterdam port. What do we do with it? Because we cannot get it out of the port. There is not enough infrastructure. So um, there is two very clear components here. One is the state of the physical world, mm-hmm. right? So where's the wires? Where's the gas pipelines? Where's what? Where's the demand? Where's the supply? That we know objectively. We can measure yeah. and we have a map. Yeah. And then the second one is how do we make a decision about what to invest in? Mm-hmm. And that 
we know is not a straight economic argument. There are so many other factors about unemployment, about politics, about power dependence, about culture, about rules. The, the, you know. So coming back to your question, how do you, you know, reconcile the two? Uh, the, I don't need the stakeholder to understand the process of emergence of a pattern. Mm-hmm. I have the computer for that to systematically uh, compute the interactions over time. What they need to do is to tell me what you know. What do they do after they wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, and go to work? And that's why I like agent-based modeling so much because it is at an individual level. Who am I? What do I know? What do I care about? They can talk very clearly about that. How do I make a decision, even though sometimes they might not be aware of it, but we can deconstruct that mm-hmm. and come up with a narrative that makes sense. Now, in a, in a social process, and there it goes again, I will be talking to very many different stakeholders. So I'm talking, let's say, to the high-voltage uh, you know, transmission grid operator. I'm mm-hmm. talking to the distribution operator, to gas people, to the port people. And they all have different logics. They're similar, but sometimes radically different. They're different stories that all affect the same physical right. world. Yeah. So I, on the other side, I'm building a simplified but fairly accurate model of the energy transport uh, infrastructure in the port. And that thing doesn't lie, quote unquote, right? There is mass yeah. balances, energy balances. I can yeah. do Ohm's law. I can do uh, load flow calculations and get a very accurate model yeah. of what a change in demand or supply of energy in that system will do. Yeah. And then you put them together. So I can start constraining the almost infinite insanity that humans are capable of, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. With physical limits. Yeah. And my stakeholder, my user does not have to understand, doesn't have to run the model in its head. Mm. So when you say, okay, how do they understand the complexity? Well, they don't. Mm. And I spend a lot of effort on getting the right, or as transparent and as well-documented as possible input on the, how do I believe that I and my neighbors work? I have a lot, spend a lot of effort having the physical models correct. Mm -hmm. And then I spend a lot of effort doing as good software engineering as I can with unit testing, with verification of my code, making sure that the, the, the artifact I'm constructing, uh, the, 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 the simulation is as accurate as I can get it. In other words, there aren't any mechanical errors in yes. the software because the, the other problem is, of course, the validation, which exactly. is, is it appropriate for the real world, which is exactly. different. So I yeah. cannot validate yeah. in, the, in the classical sense yeah. because the only, va- only experiment that I could do is change a part of the infrastructure. Well, that's the thing that I can't mess about because I have one shot at it. Right, I only have once the money to change a high voltage. Oh, right, line. in the real world. Yes. Yeah, yeah, in the real yeah, world. Yeah, 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 I can't yeah, just yeah. mess with it. I, yeah. I have one shot. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, if you are careful about how you're building your models, your software, right? How you ve- verify? It's not validate, but verify. Verify. Yeah. It's doing what it should be doing. Then you can rely on the emergent patterns that come out of the computational process to yeah. be relevant and recognizable. Yeah. And then you see people are actually very good at explaining the patterns they see because we think in narratives, right? That's what's so wonderful about you know how humans think is we have these theories of mind, we have theories of the world, and we tell each other stories. And modeling is quantitative storytelling. That really <laughs> is what it is, right? Yeah, right? That's, yeah, yeah. And so we say, look, if you believe this is how the world works, and if you accept that this physical representation of the grid is correct, yeah. then this is one of the many ways how this can play out. Yeah. And that's if that process of telling a story through a quantitative means 
is tremendously insightful to people. Right, yeah. So before we move on with more sure. details about the modeling process, sure. which of course I'm uh, eager to, to talk about, um, you, you didn't, uh, I mean, you, you one of your main areas you work in is actually the whole energy yes. environment problem. Is that, yes. is that, um, is that because of a, if you will, personal preference of yours? Or is that because it's the biggest problem and so as a scientist you want to solve that? Or how did you, why is, is, is I mean, you could, you could, I imagine there could be other uh, problem areas that mm -hmm. could benefit from your approach as well. Absolutely. So that's, yeah, that's, huh, what should I say about that? Um, it's also a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. Um so a number of reasons. I mean, it is the problem we are facing, right? So Stephen Hawking has a saying where he says that the 21st century will be the century of complexity. And we have never been faced with such challenges before as a species. True. And that worries me greatly because I see things going wrong, right? We all know that. Right? Yeah. Climate change to resources to inequality, all of these things. Sure. Um, and on a more personal level, I'm, I'm an immigrant, right? I've, I've, I've come from the Balkans. I've seen yeah. war. And... The you know being as lucky as you are to be in a, in a developed peaceful country, it is also the sense of noblesse oblige almost, right? Mm. It sounds a bit melod melodramatic maybe, but it's that sense of. Uh, but this is a thing where you can give back to the world, mm. Mm. and you see that a lot of people who are into this are into it in a very. It's a very normative choice, you know. I do believe the better world is possible, mm -hmm. and when the question comes in thirty years from my kids, it's like, Dad, where were you? <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, though, I mean, we're storytellers, right? We'll always right. find a good reason how, how we contributed. But, I mean, this yours maybe right. more directly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Sure. This feels yeah. right. And, yeah, yeah. and yes. you know, universities with, with, the, with the endless supply of brilliant young minds yeah. are just an amazing place for that. I mean, you know, sure. as, as pain in the neck as academia can be at times, <laughs> yes. um, it does have that. And when you touch hundreds of students per year and you tell them these stories and they come out different, and they think about the, differently about the world. You've done something. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so that—that's it. To me, it's a very, so a very strong and normative choice to do these things. So, so did you ever? So, so what I, I I said that there might be other problem areas that are similar in nature where your approach could work. And um, do you have do you have one in mind? Like, so if I look at the work I've been doing, is for example. Um, I do quite a lot of work on on flooding and extreme events, mm -hmm. and, and 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 with with hydrologists, right? So I collaborate with them, and we do social hydrology and try to understand how it's a human decisions affect very locally the flooding, the, mm -hmm. the dams, and stuff like that. So it's it's a fairly technical mm -hmm. thing that is driven very much by choice and beliefs and values. Yeah, um, you know, energy transition is one. The big question still coming, of course, is the whole resource transition, so circular economy. Yeah, how on earth are we ever going to do that? Yeah, on earth, <laughs> literally, right? Yeah, um, and but it it boils down to also um we've we've looked at for example the emergence of faults in design this was in, in car manufacturing uh -huh. where we argued that a fault is an emergent thing where a number of things come together sure it's with cheese model right right so it's a vibration uh, together with corrosion and yeah. then you have a failure mode yeah and how do we organize the social processes so that they are able to grasp these yeah. things before they happen. Yeah. I mean, just 
throwing out two more areas, right? One is, for example, the healthcare system. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes. there's not much physical going on, but there is economic, and economic is on a on a, on a statistical level. You can probably also put formulas around. It. You can't. I mean, you can't create money, and so on. So yeah. that well, the government, but you as a, as a, if you look at the system boundary of sure. the healthcare organization, you, you can't. Yes. Um. So that could be an area. Oh, absolutely. And the the fascinating thing about about healthcare is that. You know, these are wicked problems, right? And, yeah, right. Uh, wicked problems is, is a where, technical term. Wicked is a technical term. Yes, wicked is a technical meaning? term. Meaning? <laughs> uh, meaning that um, there is high disagreement about how things work. There is a lot of disagreement about what causes things to, to happen. And there is tremendous stakes mm-hmm. at the outcomes. And you can't afford to be wrong. To be wrong yeah. When you're wrong, you're out. Yeah. And healthcare is the extreme because if you mess up, you're dead. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. And... Uh, nobody wants to be that one mess up. Yeah. And so we, the stakes are super high. There's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of effort has to go into making sure that, you know, the, the right therapy, the right diagnosis, and that's not cheap. Yes. And because nobody wants to, you know, say, okay, we won't treat you because you're too expensive. That's just morally unacceptable, yeah. even though that's reality. That's at some reality. Point. You, you, do, you, you, you do that, but you don't say that. Right. <laughs> exactly. So there's a yeah. very strong uh, uh, moral yeah. and ethical aspect to it. And uh, that makes any, ra- uh, you know, the rational arguments very difficult to mm-hmm. make or just, you know, you can't even talk about the rational argument, which yeah. will be. Well, let's have everybody over 65 die because yeah. that will be the cheapest thing to have. It's <laughs> yeah. like, of course you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, and that it's that tension between the ever better better becoming technology. So that evolution, we, yeah. we expect the best treatment, of course, the most expensive one. Yeah. Um, and of course, there is some very fundamental design flaws in the way how the uh, the markets, you know, yes. some things should not be a market. Yeah. I yeah. deeply believe in that. Yeah, this was, is one of them. I was going to ask about that. Um, Aren't markets, um, if you will, a way of uh, organizing these kinds of, um, yeah, well, big problems where you cannot, like, you know, where you don't have all information available to everybody, and so you do the price as a means of transporting information. You know, I'm sure you know all these right, theories. Right. I, I, I'm, I don't, don't, don't know much more than what I just said. But uh, are, aren't markets the solution? Well, markets are a solution to to well. So okay, so let, let's take a step back. Yeah, markets are a technology, right? They're societal, a societal technology. So societal yeah. technology, yeah. exactly. They yeah. they had to be invented. Yeah, and um, you know, my colleagues uh, uh, in the group spend a lot of time designing markets. Right, these are mm-hmm. things that need to be designed. You have to set up the rules. Yeah, and um, markets work for some things, and they utterly fail for others. Uh, so, for example, natural monopolies are a classical example, right? There are some things that just don't, you know, y- rail, right? Yeah. Rail is the UK's rail system, for example. I mean, if there ever was a disaster yes. of privatization and markets, that's got to be one. Yeah. There it just does not work. It doesn't make sense because it, there is a strong natural monopoly for the infrastructure. Yeah. Water is another one. Not, exactly. And Mobile some, phone infrastructure, at least the physical. Infra- right. Yeah, infrastructure. Exactly. Not services. Infrastructure exactly. is another one. Exactly. Yeah. And then everything that... The moment when you touch a basic human right, to me, mm-hmm. markets have nothing. Must not be a lot close to it. And that's a no ethical. Cho- it's ethical statement. It's a normative statement. Mm-hmm. But you must not have things that people def- depend on: air, water, healthcare, l- healthcare, absolutely left to a market. I think that's just immoral. 
because you know what markets do. Markets are systems for optimizing whatever f- function you give them. And we are, uh, there's a wonderful talk, and we will, I think, link to that from the CCC conference one or two years back on uh, uh, of corporations being AIs, right? So the mm-hmm. most def- yeah. most successful AIs are the corporations yeah. that completely solve the problem of optimizing profits. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the only thing they care about and thus destroy absolutely everything but, but, uh, in their wake. I, I don't want to make this a uh, discussion about markets. Uh, like, I mean, uh, well, you did. You just asked No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> sorry. I, I should say it differently. I don't want to dwell too long on this. Okay. But um, if I were to defend them, the markets, then um, I would say that markets, because of this drive to optimize and competition, they also provide uh, create innovation. Oh, absolutely. And so in that sense, they could be a way to come up with innovative solutions for complex problems, which could be kind of one of the rule sets you're talking about for your for your kind of agent-based systems. Yes. So if I if I take this to the to the to the extreme, I would say, isn't every interaction between agents that follow a bunch of rules, isn't that a market? I mean, how would you d- distinguish a market from any other, you know, emergent system in the way you define it? Would you say the the goal is just the optimization of profit, or how, how do you do that? That's a that's an interesting point. So, I would say market is a model, right? So all models are wrong; some are useful. Sure. So, don't get me wrong, right? There's a lot of markets that make perfect sense, and you should do that. Yeah. The biggest Problem with classic with markets as understood by classical economics is the externalities, right? Yeah, because they are mm-hmm. they are there, right? That's what got us in the mess in the first place. Externalities is La- so externalities are all the effects that are not included in the price, but are so that which are uh, external to the market. But I, I, I could say the system boundary of your model is too small. Yeah, okay, right? but that's <laughs> I fully agree. That's, no, that's why the, we need regu- That's why we regulate markets. Yes, is yeah, to yeah. prevent those things. Yes. So. Uh, the cheapest way to produce something is to make it and then just dump the trash in the nearest river. Yeah, because that is the logical solution. But you must not do that. You should not yeah. do that. Yeah, so yeah. you have to bound them. Yeah, and so it's that balance. So no, I'm not against markets, but mm-hmm. they need to be designed in a way, and they must mm-hmm. be bound yeah. in a way that is societally acceptable. Yeah. And due to the geopolitics of mega corporations that have more money and power than some countries, yeah. that's where it goes wrong. It's probably fair to say that many or some of the agent-based systems you create include markets oh, absolutely. that are bounded by the absolutely. by other rules that you design as part. And so maybe one of the questions you're trying to ask is what are yes. the constraints we have to specify for that market? Absolutely. That's spot yeah. on. And so not every interaction is a market, mm-hmm. right? No, no. Markets, yeah. are, markets assume, let's say, do I say this right? A lot of neoclassical economics, and that's if there's a thing I love to hate, then it's neoclassical <laughs> economics, uh, assumes that everything is a zero-sum game. Yeah. If you win, I have to lose. Yes. Now, if there's one thing we know is that human humans do not work that way. Yes. And because we can of also that, both lose. We can also both lose, <laughs> and we can also both win. Yeah, I'm the pessimist. No. Okay. But so yeah. So it is not just about cutting the cake; it's also making a bigger cake. Yes. And that, as long as that does not fundamentally enter class uh, economics and becomes into market design, we are we have a problem with them. Yeah, and that is the, that wonderful non-rationality that must be considered when you're dealing with social technical systems. People will do things because they believe it's the right thing to do. Yeah, to the point that people will lose their lives for the right thing. Yeah, right, and that's utterly non-rational, but it's the right thing to do. Uh, and so that's that's. We need to capture that aspect of humanity 
if you want to design systems for the humans, not for abstract decision-making yeah, optimizers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that means the technology, the systems we make for us have to allow for these things. Yeah. yeah. And that's often missing because they are all designed for, well, you know, uh, okay, I can rant on about this for a while, but uh, on. <laughs> you can see, for example, there's, there's interesting development in U.S. that happened a very sort of negative spiral of living in suburbs because you have the cars, so you can live far away. There's yeah. lots of space, so you can make suburbs easily. It's cheap. Yeah. It's cheap, right? So you, you get fragmented societies because it's very hard to visit your friends because you can't walk anywhere. You have to have a car. Thus, you spend a lot of time in front of television. Now, television is commercial in the sense that it has to grab views, right? Because for the, for the, for the, for the advertisements. Yeah. Thus, has every incentive to make things that are riotous, that are loud, that grab your attention. Yeah. Um, coupled with, specifically in the U.S., is very weak protection laws for labor, uh, you know, fighting the unions as they did throughout history. People become isolated, become alone, become afraid, and then when they vote, things <laughs> go wrong. Yeah. And so these multiple technologies that in itself maybe are not necessarily evil or bad, but in, in, mm. in the way how they... I don't know, Interact in a complex way. Right, right. And I was going to say design, <laughs> but I don't think they were designed that way. No, but, probably not, yeah. But and so these systems have failed to accommodate things like, you know, friendship and having closeness and proximity. So the only place you can go to have friends is a church. <laughs> right? Or that, a country in, club, in, yeah. Right. In the US it is the local church. Yeah. Which, you know, you can think what you want about religion, but it has a very important social function. Yeah. And, you know, do you is that how we want to live our lives right mm -hmm. and that's it's that finding that balance that I think has to lead to a sustainable world and that's it is a hard thing to do mm -hmm. because of the institutions the lock-ins and all that yeah yeah, yeah. And, and one thing that is also maybe hard is how do you measure these things right I mean if you put it into a model you have to measure it somehow I mean yes Measure doesn't have to be a numerically precision, a precise value you know three digits after the decimal point but you have to represent that somehow you have to You know, have to take it into account. Otherwise, you can't simulate it. Not even in an, in an agent-based model, I guess. No, in any kind of model, right? Yeah. So the the most of the time, when building models, um, so uh, some you know some of the stuff I've been writing academically is is on this modeling process, right? Yeah. And most amount of time has to be spent in what is the question that we're asking? What is mm -hmm. the lack of insight? Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised how hard it is sometimes to to pin that down. It really is. You know, being specific and there is the lack yeah. of insight in general versus the question I'm going to ask the model. Yeah. And then we spend an inordinate amount of time, days upon days of discussions and workshops to figure out, okay, so what is relevant and what is not relevant? Mm -hmm. So the system boundaries. And then even more time goes on in, so how do we represent it then? Yeah. Because you're always going to violate reality, right? That's that's the point of a model. You right, parameterize, you simplify. You have to simplify, yeah. otherwise you might as well just run reality, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the discussion has to be, okay, the balance between what will not make me cry software-wise, right? Because there are some, as you know, as a software developer, there are software constructs that are just a pain in the ass to work with because they're going to be the complex data structures or I have to you know, spend a lot of CPU cycles to do stuff versus does my stakeholder understand it? Yeah. And uh, versus... Um, 
is it even recognizable as the thing I'm trying to say? Trust, a classical one. Mm. Trust is a thing I love to hate in terms of modeling. What is it? Is it a number from 1 to 100? Mm. Is it an emergent pattern of repeated interactions which have been positive versus the ones that didn't go well? So it's a statistical property about how for the example, system behaved? Yeah. Yeah. Is it... You know, as as the U.S. military, for example, says, uh, trust is the amount of vulnerability you're willing to expose yourself to, <laughs> right? So I trust you not to hurt me, So yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? Um, what is it then? And what is a representation that is both software-wise sane and communicates, is commensurable, which is the technical term, to my stakeholder? Does mm -hmm. it align with their mental model? Mm -hmm. And in the way how I like to make models, I tend to make the error towards the stakeholder. Mm -hmm. It is to me far more important that they understand what's in there than that it is going to be the ultimate most elegant representation. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it, the, the goal is for them to th be forced to think about the world in a systematic fashion yeah. through the modeling process. So I have one more question about energy and then we move sure. on. But, but still, you, you, um, when you say the modeling process, yes. um, you, you seem to imply that the the gain in understanding doesn't necessarily come from running the model, yes. but from thinking about how to represent things. Absolutely. So it's, if you will, the language definition, I would call that, right? Right. It's the, the meta model. How, how do, what, what is it that I'm going to run then? Yes. So, yeah. Yes, that's, that's um, well, if there is one, one big insight I got in the last, say, 20 years of building models, then it's that. Mm -hmm. Especially in the... So I agree, see, by the way. I have the right, same experience. Right. And so this is different than a technical model, right? Again, because the goal is not prediction, right? No, but it's even true when you build a technical model. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Fair enough, yeah. yeah. And so here, I've, so there's a, okay, an anecdote maybe to illustrate this. Yeah. Uh, I was working with, well, uh, the author uh, port authority of a large nearby port, okay? <laughs> um, and we were trying to think about how to, which kinds of industries would make the most sense in terms of, sort of industrial symbiosis within the port and how do we you know how do we get that kind of industry in this new part of land that we just developed right and well as you're deconstructing this model and you're trying to conceptualize it it becomes clear that well what is the mechanism and the process by which you choose which company to accept which not mm -hmm. which seems like the totally obvious thing that this authority has to do And this was in a group with, like, I don't know, maybe 15 people in the room all working on these things, you know, the, the uh, contact managers, there was the, 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 the salespeople, the, the regional op operations people, and they just looked at each other and went quiet. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was the moment of epiphany. I was like, so how, how come that you don't know? Yeah, the question. Right. <laughs> and they agreed it's the most important thing, yeah. right? So, and then they're like, oh, but wait, but that, that decision, well, then there is this, 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 uh, Trades guy goes to Shanghai, goes to a trade show, and then gets drunk with this guy, <laughs> and then they do karaoke, and then so I was like, "Wait, you want me to model beer drinking?" Well, yes. So this idea that it's an emergent process, emergent yeah. result in this company to to actually make the decision, and the only reason why we got to that was because we were in this process of decomposing mm -hmm. in a highly systematic fashion the process of waking up in the morning, having a cup of coffee, and accepting a company into your region. Mm -hmm. And it is that rigor of the model building that yeah. forces the stakeholder yes. to ask the question. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And so that was the moment where I was like, okay, so this is amazing because the power of models is to systematically explore the dynamics of these things and give people insight. Yeah. 
And I don't care how I get the insight. Is it with the graph or by the fact that they're sitting in a room talking to each other? Yeah. It's just the model is a means to an end. So there is this guy, uh, Grigore uh, Rosu. Mm -hmm. He um, does formal verification of software. Mm -hmm. um, he has a thing called the K framework, semantic definition framework. And he specifically works on smart contracts these days, mm -hmm. probably because that's where the money is, mm -hmm. <laughs> in uh, pun intended. Um, and he says that, well, most of the insight we get, maybe 80% of the insight we get, meaning making sure the contract is kind of fail-safe and bulletproof mm -hmm. is from the process of formalizing it. And it's not about the fact that it's formalized into a mathematical way where you can then right. prove stuff. It's the process of actually talking about stuff and thinking about things hard. And so... Exactly right. Because that's a interesting... Most stakeholders, most people who are in the real world doing things are so busy doing things yeah. that they do not have the time and the space or the skill, right? Yeah. It's, it's also skill to systematically think through yeah, what exactly. they're really doing because yes. they just have to get stuff done. Yes. Yeah. And this is not you know, a comment of saying, oh, you're stupid. No, you just have to, you know, there's operations and then there's work and then yeah. there's academia which thinks about these things. Yeah. And that's where we come in and help people yeah. really think it systematically through. Right. So let's go back to the, um, to the sustainability problem um, yes. of the, well, civilization yes um I, I read somewhere where you said that the the socio-technical um system we're talking about here it, it eats and poops yes and that's the problem right so well, it's not the problem no it's i mean a that's, given. it's a given and that's yes. how kind of how we got into this, in yes. this into this corner yes um so obviously your research is a lot about how we can get out of that corner mm -hmm. um but how did we get into it uh -huh. that's an excellent question um Okay, so let me first state that I don't think anybody really knows. Yeah. So I guess so my, uh, what I'm going to say, I guess, is really just how I understand it, you know, based on science I know. But yeah. yeah. Systems eat and poop. Everything that lives, everything that metabolizes has to have energy, has to have material inputs, and has to have material outputs because mass balances have to be closed. And that energy, of course, is also balanced. Yeah. Um, the fascinating thing about fossil fuels is that they are captured historical sun, mm -hmm. right? So we had sun from the from millions of years ago. Nature got rid of it or just parked it. <laughs> yeah. And the energy density of these things is incredible. Yeah. Um, so humans come intellectually, I think, as a species from a time of infinite everything. Mm -hmm. Because we, again, we talked about the time and uh, space perception of humans, five kilometers, whatever. World is forever. World is everywhere. World is infinite. So what you're saying is the relationship between available resources and the universe of a person is, is infinite. infinite. Yeah. It's such yeah, a big yeah. difference, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it starts with the Industrial Revolution, of course. Yeah. Um, oh, actually, much earlier, of course, but the Industrial Revolution... Systematic where, farming might be right. another... Yeah. Well, I mean, we could talk even more back, but for the current yeah. sort of predicament, yes. at, so, at some point the steam engine gets invented. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting about steam engine is that the first thing we built for the steam engine was a pump. So the steam engine <laughs> eats coal to do work, and the main work was pumping the water out of the mine so that you can mine more coal. <laughs> right, yeah. Right, so it's an autocatalytic, self-reinforcing process yeah. that's running on the delta T or the del delta energy between the stored yeah. sun and the entropic environment You know, it's, it's the second law of thermodynamics, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, re it's releasing molecules and heat into the environment. 
And that that difference in energy from historic sun to today's environment is what drives this machine mm -hmm. at a very fundamental level. Yeah. And because it's so self-amplifying, it becomes easier and cheaper and cheaper and better. And mm -hmm. because there's money, mm -hmm. now you can improve it. It becomes more efficient. Yeah. And it just goes non-linear. Mm -hmm. And because the... Uh, uh, you know, the capitalistic system really, this fits very well with that. It's this extractive economy, take stuff, add value and dump the rest. Again, early market failures, even before we realized that there are market failures in terms of externalities, emissions. Yeah. Why would you think about emissions when the world was infinite and there's this yeah. endless ocean? Yeah, it flows down the river, it's gone. Right, it's gone, right? Yeah. And there is no such thing as, such place as away. You cannot throw things away. They go somewhere. Depends on your system boundary, but yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in, on this planet, they don't go anywhere. Sure, but they in the universe stay. of a community, yes. It's, it's exactly, of yeah. a community of an individual. Yeah. And it took quite a while until we realized, wait, this is not going well. And the you know historically, the big moment was in the 60s when Rachel Carson's Silent Spring uh, came out, a book. And that was specifically about use of DDT. Mm-hmm which DDT has made agriculture, industrial agriculture possible. It has saved probably millions of lives by producing just so much more food because it's a very efficient insecticide. Mm -hmm. However, what we did not know is that it also bioaccumulates, among others, in birds, also in humans, and it makes the egg shells of birds right. very brittle. Yeah. And so the silent spring was this moment at which there are no more birds because they all squashed their own babies, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Which is a you know terrible thing to, to, to have. And that's when the world woke up for the first time. Incidentally, also when the first images, the blue marble photograph yeah, from, NASA, from the moon, yeah, yeah. Of, of the planet Off the Earth. Earth from the moon. Right. That's the yeah. first time we realized, oh wait. Yeah. We are in this small little blue blue dot lost in this huge universe. Yeah, yeah. This is us. That's all we have. I mean, another problem in this context is the big time delay, right? Of course. Climate change oh, yes, takes yes, yes. forever until it actually… Exactly. Not, not, not just that now it, we affect 50 years, but there were, whatever, decades where there just wasn't any effect at all. Exactly right. So yeah. CO2 molecule takes 40 to 80 years. Yeah. I think about 40 years to reach yeah. the stratosphere. So the climate change we're experiencing right now are emissions yes. from the 80s, Yes. which is… Utterly frightening because the the, the emissions sure. have quadrupled. Or yeah, I, yeah. I don't know exactly. I mean, they've incredibly increased since then. Yeah, I mean, it's not. Mo it's not. It's <laughs> it's already factored into the two degree thing, right? So we already are already afraid. Sure, of that. sure. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it is. You know, it, 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 at a personal level, if you think weather change and weather impacts are horrible right now, just you wait. You ain't seen oh, yeah. nothing. Oh yet. yeah, yeah, of course. So in that sense, because of this linear extractive economy, because this is by far the easiest way to do things. Plus, we did not know any better. Yeah. We got locked into this trajectory of efficient, super efficient production. Mm. Globalized economy, which just makes it cheap to move. I mean, you know, I buy lots of stuff on AliExpress, right? Mm. Which is environmentally, I mean, it's insane. Yeah. That for three euros, I can have a microcontroller shipped from China in the <laughs> envelope. It's just, yeah. it's insane. And within a week, it's here. Yeah. But this is the cheapest thing I can do. Yeah. And because we have these limited resources, linked to money and money is earned in a highly specific way which does not consider yeah. environmental impacts yeah. the system just took off in a completely wrong attractor right the chaotic system that reinforces Attractor, itself yeah, yeah. gets locked in a tractor yeah. and that's why it's so incredibly difficult because now you have to fight 
against incredible amounts of people, uh, you know, amounts of money being made the traditional way. And it makes perfect sense that you don't want to start, uh, stop making money, right? Yeah. I mean, who would want to do that? Yeah. And uh, the way how capitalist system is designed, or mainly how, well, not designed, how it emerged, very strongly concentrates wealth on the mm -hmm. top. Mm -hmm. And I can show you some very simple simulations that show that this is almost a law of nature, right? This power law distribution is common in nature and also in an economic system. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the 80-20 or the nine, you know, 91, 1%, yeah. that happens in nature a lot mm -hmm. and happens in our economy as well. Mm -hmm. Wealth accumulates and then power accumulates and then, of course, the laws that are supposed to prevent that get rewritten. Yeah, because of that power. Because of that power, yeah. which is, again, only rational, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and there we are. And that just locks us in in a very, very bad place. And breaking out of that means fighting the existing power or changing the existing power or, have, or at least hoping that th they're able to realize that. It also requires a tremendous amount of knowledge that we don't have yet. Uh -huh. Dynamics of the systems, how the biological systems are coupled, what the climate does. And also just you have to relay the tracks of a high-speed train while you're running on them. There's this wonderful little movie from Wallace and Gromit, right? I and mean, you might know that little clip mm -hmm. where he's driving on this train, he's just laying tracks while he's while he's doing it. Right? There are actually these machines that do that, right? They take the old tracks right. and, and so you need story. <laughs> so you need to do that with a society. Yeah, right. Yeah. While it's running. You, you can't stop the system. You can't because, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I also drive a dirty old car because I can't afford the electric one. Yeah. Right? And, you know, I have unpleasant amounts of emissions because I just also can't, you know, can change easily. And yeah. there are so many people who are, a uh, vast majority of people who are much poorer than you and me sitting here. Yeah. Right? Because we are literally the 1% here globally. Globally, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And they can't afford yeah. to be clean yet because we don't, they don't have access to clean tech. Yeah. They do things because they have to do to survive. Yeah. Uh, you have to feed your kids and that always trumps long-term goals which is rational from that person's perspective and also morally justifiable by the of way course. it's not just uh, sometimes rational sounds a bit too materialistic but it's it's also morally okay you can't have your children die knowingly because you want to save the climate right it's bullshit right right, right. because yes. you, you it's clear what you're going to choose right yeah. yeah you know and because that that moral discussion is locked in with this linear extractive econom economical of technology, you know, the way how we even, even our technolo uh, technology is the way. Like so yeah. let me give you an example since we're talking about tech as well. Metal recycling, mm -hmm. right? You would say, okay, that's an awesome thing. Let's do that because they're theoretically infinitely recyclable. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens? You take metals, we dig them out of the earth, we put them into various combinations, into products. Now, if you look at uh, the way how we produce metals, there are seven base metals that are produced. Yep. Mm -hmm. And all the other metals are derived from byproducts of those seven core metals. Mm -hmm. We're talking iron, copper, nickel, one of them. Right. I can put a link to a paper. And the rest is about. alloys, basically. No, no, there are, so let's say, silver is co-mined from, or... Oh, I see. Uh, zinc okay. is co-mined. Co-mined, yeah. Co-mined, okay. or it's co-produced. Right. Okay, right. so mm -hmm. every, all the technology that we have for metal extraction is designed around mixtures that occur in nature. Yep. Natural phosphates, natural oxides, natural sulfates, all of those things. Yeah. Now you take aluminium, copper, and steel, and you stick it together. You call it a car, mm -hmm. right? Or an alternator or anything. Yeah. Then you shred that, if you're smart, and you re recycle, which is awesome. And suddenly you have an aluminium-steel-copper mixture. Yeah. 
that there simply is no technology to separate. Right. Because we just it's a mixture that never occurs in nature by itself because through biological processes or volcanic processes. And there are mixtures that are so-called azeotropes, which means that you cannot separate them thermodynamically. Uh-huh. Like a water alcohol mixture, mm-hmm. which is 80-20, mm-hmm. you, you cannot distill it out. Right. You have to do sieves and other things. Right. So with metals, we're doing the same thing. So we are destroying even our copper stock mm-hmm. by just using copper in various combinations. Because it is it is mixed with stuff from which we can't separate it exactly anymore. Exactly right. So you can't do your cyclic economy you because cannot. you can't get it out Thermodynamic again. Thermodynamic sits in a way, plus we don't yeah. have the tech. Yeah. So, wow. So that means I have to design things very differently. All of these things were, you know, because you design things in a linear fashion, because you didn't know anything any better at the time, you have technologically even locked yourself in. Yeah. Yeah. Let alone that we don't have the markets yet, we don't have the rules, regulations, or enforcement yeah. to get this recycling going. Yeah. So that's a hell of a challenge, and that's, uh, yeah, that's gonna, <laughs> it's going to be interesting. All right, so let's let's move a little bit more to the, if you will, mechanics of how it how what you do works and what yeah. what you do. Um, to so to to recap, how would you phrase your research question or the typical or the research area? How, how would you? phrase that how you what, okay. what's in the introduction if you if you write a paper right so um okay this is going to be uh, ridiculously specific uh so i would say that my work and research isn't about uh supporting decision making using participatory multi-modeling mm-hmm. which is okay whatever uh it boils down to working with people to help them make better decisions in complex social systems using mm-hmm. Models and simulations created jointly. So that's your, um, yeah, that's where you basically integrate the stakeholders. Yes. And uh, and for the rest, we do, in terms of technical stuff, yeah. um, computer science stuff, um, number of things that I really care about is well, modeling method. So how does one actually construct a simulation in a way that it's useful, transparent, understandable, verifiable, repeatable? Mm-hmm. It's actually good that it becomes good science, not just yeah. look at this shiny thing. Right. Yeah. And the second thing is what I really care about a lot is multi-modeling. So how do we integrate multiple kinds of models mm-hmm. into a coherent story about the world? Yeah. Okay. And an example would, would be, for example, a classical mix would be system dynamics and an agent-based model. Mm-hmm. And system dynamics, for those that don't know it, is uh, is representing a system in a set of coupled differential equations. Yeah. And you, it's also well, called continuous. Yeah, they're continuous. They have a, they have the main assumption. There is a continuous representation of time yeah. and the uh, the the presence of stocks and flows. That's mm-hmm. how you represent the world, mm-hmm. uh, which is very good for high level system dynamics, where you have a hypothesis about the structure of the interactions. Mm-hmm. Now, if you cannot make the assumption that the structure of interactions is stable such as in complex adaptive system, especially when it's adaptive and learning and reorganizing itself, you have to go into agent-based modeling. Mm-hmm. Now, agent-based modeling is is a bottom-up method compared to, let's say, top-down, if you would consider uh, yep. system dynamics, where you right, have... that's the core difference, exactly. Right. So you, and they're a, discrete, right? They're not continuous. Yes, so ABMs yeah. f- exist in a, in a discrete, continu- uh, discrete time in yep. ticks, and ticks can be... From a second to millisecond to a century, whatever is relevant. Right. Mm-hmm. There is no f- fixed thing. Yep. Depends on what you're building. And the core of agent-based modeling is the heterogeneous entities 
that act and interact with each other over time to emerge a pattern. So if we stay with the agent-based stuff for a moment, um, these ticks, they are... So basically, it works almost like a game, right? So in every time slice, every agent does something according to the state of the system, which is probably the other actors. Yeah, or which own state. And then it's set of rules. Yes, exactly right. So um, the not the first, but the second version of SimCity was one of the earliest agent-based models. Okay. So Will Wright has an interesting, uh, 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 there's an interesting article with him about uh, ABMs and modeling. But, uh, so ABM is agent-based so, sorry, agent -based model. models, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, so the, maybe a bit about the history for, uh, for our listeners. It started, the very first way to think about this was really John van Neumann. Mm -hmm. And, um, about you know this idea of a self-replicating machine, a thing that you know interacts with its environment, makes more of itself, which is of course very you know hypothetical. And then John Conway, mm -hmm. of course, yeah. came with the Conway's Game of Life, yeah. and that was first played with coins on a table. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that doesn't scale, or you know, <laughs> uh, so the Game of Life maybe just to say a few things. Um, it's a seller automata, so it's a grid. And I think we should provide a nice link to the, some of these things. And explain what a cellular automaton oh, so, okay. is. <laughs> <laughs> no, Stack unwind. <laughs> so cellular automata. Uh, you have a grid. Let's say a square, you know, but a block paper. Yeah. Every chessboard. Exactly. Ch chessboard and every cell ha is a state machine. So it's it's a set of states and functions that transition from state to state. Yeah. And uh, whether they're finite state machines or whatever, but yeah. initial initial cellular automata, simple ones, will have a state living or dead, white or black, mm -hmm. and usually two, three rules yeah. that govern their behavior. And they would be, uh, if two neighbors are alive, I become alive. If more than three are alive, I die because I'm crowded. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. yeah. So that's the point, right? That cellular automata usually take the neighboring cells yes. as the input to the rules that then determine the next state in this discrete time. Exactly thing. right. Yes. yes. Now, the interesting thing about cellular automata is that uh, there's a number of biological processes that work that way. So classic example, the shells. This is certain types of shells that have these triangular patterns mm -hmm. on them um, that you can see, I think, in the links as well, that that are really governed by these very simple rules of literal physical cells interacting with their neighbors yeah. and changing colors. Um, and what's interesting is that uh, the, the specifically Conway's Game of Life, which is a very specific set of rules, turns out to be a Turing complete. Mm -hmm. And you can actually write... You know anything you could write in a Turing complete machine in a set of black and white cells flip flopping states. Yeah. Okay. Utterly impractical. Sure. But hundred percent awesome. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so that's just amazing. So that when the game of life became you know a thing, I believe, and I might be wrong. I think it was the late fifties or the early sixties. I get my dates wrong. Um, this sparked a lot of interest. You know, first, mathematicians, then physicists. Yeah, well, what's going on? That's interesting. Santa Fe picked up on these cell automata. They started doing particle physics with cellular automata, mm -hmm. setting up computation processes by disturbances in the matrix hit, hitting each other mm -hmm. and becoming adders and you know logic gates and stuff like that. And it took really until object-oriented programming became a thing that it became feasible to start building more complex agents rather than just simple CAs. Now, so CAs are mm -hmm. still remain a field of study, which is more for the theoretical stuff. But once we were 
we had the tooling, the languages to express entities, their relationships, their states, yeah. their um, um, nestedness, and their their inheritance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. one would do in a, you know any OOP language. Yeah. Then it became interesting because then you can say about oh, I am a bird. And a subclass of a bird is a hawk, and a hawk is slightly different than a general kind of bird because it's right. a predator. That helps you model your stakeholders. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so once we had these languages, a uh, number of platforms uh, you know, came up, tool, tools. NetLogo is a famous one, but it, you know, it's been used a lot in social science. There is a Swarm, which is famous. There is Repast. All sorts of tools that allow you to at a very high level, start programming logic. So they, they save you from you know worrying about memory and data structures and clocks and graphs. That's all done for you, and you can focus on behavior. So basically, you just implement a state machine. Right. And the state machine is, well, and that's where it becomes hairy. So what is just a state machine? Yeah, every imperative program is a state machine. Right. So, so yeah. okay, so that's... No, but I mean, but you probably you, you, you declare interactions, you have yes. incoming events, and then you update your state and you send out events. Right. So it's a classical reactive system. That oh, yeah, well, that's the thing. It doesn't have to be reactive. It can also be proactive. Okay, yeah, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's yeah. diff- in that sense, agents are... So Jennings right. uh, is the big sort of name in AI yeah. that has, uh, I think, about 10 rules for things like agents, and they're encapsulated, independent, proactive, and reactive. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a longer list I can... Yeah, you, know, you can find that. Yeah, but it's the the thing is that <clears throat> the reason why we really like ABMs is that the isomorphy between real world and the model is very high. You don't have to make abstractions about the pool of unemployed people or the sheep's in the meadow. No, it's the actual sheep or the actual person that has a state yeah. or a property or behavior. So, um, just a very quick aside sure. before I ask the real question. Since we talked about CA cellular mm-hmm. automata, I'm sure you you are aware of and read uh, Wolfram's uh, NKS mm-hmm. new kind of science mm-hmm. opinion on that. Oh, well, I have lots of opinions on that. Um. <laughs> I read it at the time. I was very impressed by uh, the, if you will, the amount of work and the breadth to which he went. But I I well, had the impression that he he took it too far. Yes. So new kind of science. Uh, vastly overstates what it has achieved mm-hmm. and he's basically stolen work. Oh, that I don't know. That's a fairly well-known fact. Uh, okay. It's a, it's it's a PhD students that never got the credit. Oh. Uh, so there's a lot of nasty stuff going on as far as I'm informed. Okay. Um, the interesting thing, you know, uh, fundamentally is that he showed that the rule 110 is also universal Turing machine, which mm-hmm. is quite an achievement in itself, I mean, absolutely. Um, so, there are indeed more than one very simple systems that actually can generate basically any pattern. Then claiming that thus the universe work that works that way, yeah, eh, yeah, that's that where it gets a bit weird. Yes, I was just impressed by what uh, what you can do with Mathematica in terms of yes. making a really huge book. <laughs> right, <laughs> that was impressive. There is that. Yeah. All right, let's close that parenthesis. Exactly. So, so going back to yeah. to these things, so we have a simulation. So yeah, model versus simulation. By the way, yes. you used the two words. Um, yes, I was wanted to hook into the point where you see the difference. Good point. So um, I'm sometimes a little bit sloppy uh, in language, but there is a difference. We would say a model. There's all sorts of models, right? A yeah. mental model, conceptual model, sure. qualitative model. To me, everything that doesn't have a run button is a model. That does not have a run button. Yes, the moment it has a run button, becomes a simulation. Ah, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Which is. St- not strictly true, but it's as a gut. I mean, there, it's not really a black and white. 
We are often called mod simulation models. That's the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. But uh, a model will be, to me, a model means really a explicit representation of a conceptualization of whatever yeah. you're trying to talk talk about, eh, whether it's you know milk or cows or planets or whatever societies. A simulation is a dynamic thing which uses models. Right, so that's the distinction I would yes. have made. The model is the set of rules and the abstractions yes. and the simulations, then you run it. Yes. Uh, and running usually means you supply these discrete time slices. Yes. One after the other. Yes. So it's basically, in some sense, the way you run your agent-based models is almost like a numerical mathematical model. It is certainly num well numerical in the sense that, well, no, it is... So a system dynamics model, so a set of differential equations that you are integrating, yeah. is a numerical model in a sense that you cannot analytically solve it. Right. And you have to then use numerical tricks, yeah. such as, for example, the, the Runge-Kutta method, where you yeah. change your step size, and you're trying to find the derivative of the curve, and you're trying to follow that. Yeah. Um, there, for example, that time step is computationally determined as the optimum for, depending on the shape of the curve you follow. Right. Here... The time steps have a definite meaning because your mm -hmm. agent logic. They have semantics. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So if if I'm modeling, let's say in my world where I'm modeling investments, a tick is almost always a year, mm -hmm. maybe a quarter. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, my colleagues who would do things like evacuation behavior and traffic flows, mm -hmm. that do agent-based models for that, will maybe work in seconds. Or maybe even subseconds, if mm -hmm. it's that's what the relevant time dimension is. So we say the the choice of a time step is essential because that is the moment that you say everything faster than that happens at once. Exactly. So I know that the control theory guys have this problem where if you don't run your controller with a high enough resolution, it doesn't get to the stability criterion right. you want. So you get I, aliasing and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. I can imagine you have a similar issue that if you're if the if you the, if the world works if the real world works at a smaller granularity than what you simulate, then you you smooth over. Not just smooth over. You are completely blind to processes yeah. that are faster right. than your time step. Yeah. 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 So. We do spend a lot of time discussing, you know, what is the right time step. Yeah. And we are very explicit about that choice. Yeah. Because if it's too small, it becomes computationally uh, Exactly. And expensive. if it's too if it's too coarse, then yeah. you cannot discriminate anything within that time step. Yeah. Do you do uh, that's a very detailed question, but do you do dynamic time slice adaption ad adoption, adaptation? That is possible. Yeah. Um, most tools would allow for that. Yeah, okay. I have yet to find a purpose for it myself. Okay. But that's just, you know, in my use cases, that's because the, the thing is, there is no one. Okay, so a big difference between, let's say, like an SD or optimization is you have a very rigorous set of representations. It's a mathematical function, let's say, if you're optimizing. It's a goal function. It's a set of functions you're trying to solve for that. SD, it's a stocks and flow differential equations. The moment you move into ABM, you are writing this in a Turing-complete language. Mm. Therefore, any... Any yeah. algorithm that you can think of can become behavior. Therefore, you're, you're far less limited in what you can express. But yeah. also, you know, the law of conservation of misery kicks in. So now you have to be explicit about what is a useful... Misery. Right? I mean, it's, it's always, yeah, there's yeah. always pain somewhere. It just yeah, never yeah. really stops, right? <laughs> this is nice. And with modeling, it just follows you on. So the flexibility we have by describing this in algorithmic fashion rather than, let's say, mathematical or yeah. numerical, because that's, I think, what triggered 
they started yes. the numerical stuff, is that I can say, okay, my agent wakes up in the morning, has a cup of coffee, as they all do, yeah. and then says, okay, now I have to choose between these two products. And this is, I'm referring to a work I did for European Union on a shift from products to services in order to get more sustainable behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. So what if we consume more services? Um, Rather than products, maybe we can then share products and you know environmental impact goes down and effects of policy. Yeah. So my agent wakes up and says, "Okay, now I have to buy a car because I have a need for transport, or maybe I join a car sh sharing scheme." Yeah. So what we did in this particular case, we said, "Okay, so there is such thing as status of a consumption because we know that from economics. So consuming an expensive car gives you more status than consuming a." Uh, oh, you mean social status? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, right. it yeah, yeah, be, yeah. Mm -hmm. So people I'm see cool, me. I drive a Porsche. Exactly. Yeah. Versus, oh, you're taking the bus. Yeah, right. Right. And the bus <laughs> yeah. is for losers. Yeah, which right. is of course nonsense. But yeah. yeah, then maybe I have amount of time that I have and my willingness to be green. That's mm -hmm. a number between zero and hundred, let's say, or yeah. zero and one. So I would use a multi-criteria decision making. The classical MCDA weights with. Mm -hmm. preferences and just weigh it and just get a score and right. use that score will be my decision yeah that's one way to do it yeah but you could also just write if it if else i could write if else right yeah. i could do uh, in, indeed a set of if if else which are nested yeah, other sure. things we've done is we might run an optimization routine mm -hmm. so let's say just use a normal multi-criteria optimization that mm -hmm. that just fits you know figures with the best solution and just uses that And that would happen more or less in each of these yes. slices. Every time step, mm -hmm. maybe even multiple times per time step, depending on mm -hmm. how you do it, you would just... Yeah. I've so put in, for, for example, Bayesian belief networks in right. my agents that mm -hmm. update their information, mm -hmm. update their priors, and then mm -hmm. increasingly make different decisions as they learn more. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. can put a neural network in your agents that just match a pattern. And I was going to ask about that connection. Yeah. Yeah. You can do that. I mean, then you lose the... Do I still understand what the hell is going on? Part of your model? So, this is interesting that you mentioned this because I recently wrote a little bit about models mm -hmm. for a project I'm working on and I made a distinction between models that have predictive power and models that have explanatory power. For example, a neural network, if it's trained well, mm -hmm. has predictive power but it has yes. zero explanatory power. Absolutely, yes. And so, you can certainly use... Um, a neural network for some kind of pattern matching that is a detailed decision in the agent. Yes. But basically the models you try to build, that you build them because they should have explanatory power. Absolutely right. And that's, I'm glad you're touching on that point. This is, okay, so in my world, we have fights with economists, right? That's a, <laughs> mm -hmm. especially neoclassical ones. <laughs> Now, uh, the economists that, one of the fields of economics I really like is econometrics. Right, mm -hmm. they're they're nerds just like me, which is nice. And you were not cynical right now. No, you no, 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 you really no, like no, no, no. Okay. I really do okay. like econometrics mm -hmm. because okay. they say reality first, mm -hmm. and then what do I see? Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas new classical economics says, oh, this abstract mathematical equilibrium first, and the rest is just a puzzle. Right. It's like no. <laughs> anyway, so econometricians will say, I see this thing here. I see this I don't know, interest rate changing, whatever. I can fit a model that somehow represents some kind of variables, mm -hmm. you know, 12th order polynomial, you know, I can make the elephants wiggle its trunk, the famous quote yep. from, yeah, who was it? I forget. Don't so know. they will fit a curve and they'll tell you how does it look like? Mm -hmm. They will right. not tell you how does it come to be? Right, yeah. And what we really try to do is this, this notion from uh, uh, Joshua Epstein, the generative social science. So I want a generative theory. Mm -hmm. 
I want to have a theory of the process of becoming, the process of emergence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, taking maybe a philosophical sidestep side here, this has been surprisingly difficult for classically trained scientists to think this way. And this really has to do with basically the Western tradition of science, which is very much Plato, right? The essence of things. What is the, the you know, the Sein der Dingen, mm-hmm. uh, which is all about substance. What is this essence of the substance? What is the key of that thing I'm looking at, that object, that person? Yeah, what defines the thing? What defines it, yeah. which is perfectly valid uh, and very useful if you're doing like uh, traditional, let's say, chemistry or physics. You know, yeah. What is this thing I'm looking at? The thing we have neglected in Western science in general, I think, is this notion of process philosophy rather than substance philosophy. And this mm-hmm. is Heraclitus, Pantarei, everything flows. And there's been quite some you know, thinkers on this, and one of my favorite ones is Albert White Northhead. Mm-hmm. The, and he made a quote in 1911, you know, of, which is like a really long time ago. He says that civilization progresses by increasing the number of things we can do without thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Right, and so this idea that society becomes more complex, it grows because it takes away function. It sort of organizes functions. I can go to the bathroom, push a button, and it's gone. I don't have to think about it. Right, it, I, <laughs> it just happens. Right, yeah, so the yeah. function is simple. Yeah. The structure providing that sim- that that function is extremely complex. It had to come together yeah. over decades or centuries to have a plumbing system. Yeah, I come into the room, turn on the light, and the light goes on. Trivial, simple function, incredibly complex structure. To make it work. To yeah. make it work, yeah. right? You have the grid, you have the markets, right. you have negotiations, you yeah, have yeah. generators, CO2 emissions, everything. Yeah. So what agent-based models really tap into is this fundamental orientation to process philosophy. How does the thing come to be that I want to understand? So mm-hmm. it's an explanatory model. Yeah. And I'm not claiming they're superior to more substance-based models, but they're really different. And when they're used together then we are doing some really interesting stuff mm-hmm. because we can say, okay, what is the thing that I'm seeing and what is the plausible theory of its emergence? What is the process that led to its creation? Yeah. And so that's then, of course, one of the goals you want to reach. You want to um, you want to cop with a set of behaviors that you encode as rules in agents mm-hmm. that then if... Im- where then a certain behavior emerges for the system yes. that we can, for example, see in the real world yes. or that we want to achieve. Like, for example, change from uh, carbon-based, um, yep. fossil fuel-based energy to yes. the obvious other case. And question is, how do you set the rules to make that happen? That's exactly right. Yeah. And the ability to ask the what-if question yeah. is what is truly enlightening to the people who work with these models. Right? Yeah. So if you're working with stakeholders that are doubting, should I invest in this thing or the other thing? Should I behave differently? Should I set the rules differently? It's impossible to tell uh, other than just, you know, going out and changing the world, but then you're too late, right? Yep. And simulation will not give you a prediction. So I always get into, into fights with people because, oh, but your models predict. I do not predict anything. I map out possible behaviors that are locked in the interaction dynamics of the agents that we define, and then explore this artifact they constructed, question it, how do you behave, and then reason about the real world. So the word predicting, I think what probably I hope is a fair statement is to say that given the set of rules you've encoded in your agents, 
it does predict how the system will then behave, emerge to behave. It doesn't predict it; it computes it. It it it. Just, What's the difference? Well, uh, prediction. So this is a, this brings us back to intractability. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> I have that in my list here. There we go. <laughs> and so, um, prediction means knowing in advance without. without well, without having to follow the thing through. So, ah, okay. Three million pi. So the sinus of three million pi. You do not have to follow the line of sinus, right. the sinus line for three million pi steps to find its value. You can just compute it straight out. Isn't that just the difference between analytical, analytical, and what I called numerical before? What I should have called uh, must be run in steps to find the result because you can't solve it analytically. Well, but so that's that's because these these coevolutionary processes. Are all in the exist in the, in the, in the, in the big O the expo exponential right, yeah. exponential time space, so they're not MP complete. Yeah. Therefore, you you must f simply compute them out. Mm -hmm. And evolution, specifically evolutionary processes, are not MP complete. Uh, that's why you cannot predict <clears throat> the evolution. You can say, well, it's going to go generally in this direction. Yeah. That you can tell, but not more than that. And that's why, you know, uh, Niels Bohr has this qu quote where he says, prediction is difficult, especially of the future. Future, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, dealing with intractability, where, well, if I know that you know that that thing does that thing over there and then something else happens, that is the difficult thing. Well, but that's just... So may, tell me if I'm wrong. I would say a system becomes intractable and therefore must be run instead of solved, mm -hmm. right? Because yes, that's yeah, really that, the difference. That's fair, yeah. Um, if the interactions are sufficiently complex. Yes, I would say, especially if there's feedback loops, feedback yeah, exactly. loops, if there's yeah. adaptation, if there's path dependency. Okay. So you're, you're, the simulations you run, they don't predict. Nope. Because you wouldn't use the word predict for a model. You have to run step by step to compute the outcome. Yes. But if we remove that very specific meaning of prediction and use it in a more colloquial term, then... What your models do do is they let, and I'm not using the sure, word predict, okay. they let you understand the resulting immersion behavior given the set of rules you put into the agents. That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. So what we like to do, so, okay, ABMs, to become more technical again, because yeah. they are iterative processes, right. right? They're iterative, discrete step simulations yeah. are, can be extremely chaotic. Yes. Meaning that a previous state feeds back, feeds forward into the next state, which means that errors can massively amplify mm -hmm. and small changes can have large effects or massive inputs changes can have zero effect. Yeah. Which means that when you explore an ABM, and that's really what we do, we explore the possible outcome space based on the possible input space right. is we are, do, we are mapping an attractor space. Mapping an attractor space. What are the chaotic attractors and maybe we need to take a step back and critical ah. factors is where does the system draw us towards? And those are, so we say, okay, dear stakeholder, if you believe these are the rules of the game and these are the boundaries that make sense to you, this set of encoded states and behaviors is capable of ending up generating two or three or five or 20 possible states. Right. And so the, the okay, so let me untangle this. So first of all, um, the goal is to understand what are the possible emergent behaviors. Correct. And so for that, you have to vary the inputs. Yes. That is also what the climate scientists do when they yes. do a sensitivity analysis, yes. right? So to yes. find out what actually is an important input uh, or parameterization, no, no. I should say. No, there is a difference. Okay. There's a difference. Climate models or any of these you know, physical models, yeah. 
they have high uncertainty about the value of input yes. parameters because you can't measure them exactly right. But they are ultimately measurable because they're physical phenomena. Mm-hmm. In in this world, you, of course, don't know what the value of parameters is, but mm-hmm. very often you also do not know what is the right model. So maybe you and me need to make an agent of a decision maker and you have a different rationale and your agent has a completely different logic than my agent, even uh-huh. though we're looking at the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's multi-interpretable, which is, and they're both valid, right? They're just different. So I would consider structural uncertainty as well. So is the world, how does the world look like if you believe that the agent's the behavior is like your agent and what if it's mine? And that permutations across the uncertainties. So we add very much that structural uncertainty to it because we know that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so we're, then, we're not just then mapping the uncertainty of the parameters because for that you would do like a Monte Carlo analysis, yeah. right? So you would take a point, you would draw a random sample with some distribution around that point and see how much it affects. What I tend to do is do a full factorial exploration of the entire parameter space because I might not know what's important at all. Mm-hmm. And I want to find combinations of parameters that flip me in a different state Different end state. That's your attractors again. Yes, right? that's my attractors exactly. So let's try to define that term. So when you say end state, it basically means you continue to run the simulation. Yes. But nothing more interesting happens because the system gets into a state out of which it can't, like it has found a maximum. Right. And or so, minimum or something. Yeah. So there, there is multiple ways to deal with time. Um, we of course know that the longer you run it in time, the more insane it gets, right? Because it accumulate. It's accumulating error, mm-hmm. and the less you can assume that the behavior remains the same. So if I'm doing a very realistic model, let's say the, the work I'm doing now with the infrastructure providers, we stop the simulation after 30 run, 30 time steps. We stop at 2050. Mm-hmm. And we initialize at 2020. Knowing that the world will be so fundamentally different and that all the assumptions about behavior ah, do not okay. hold. Ah, right, so right, I could right, run right. it until it converges into something. Yeah. But that's just point, that's playing with numbers. Mm-hmm. Other simulations that are maybe more abstract in nature like a CA, sorry, <clears throat> game of life or maybe the flocking model or things that have different notion of time, you can run them for a very long time to explore what happens over 10 million ticks. Will it get into steady state? Will it get into steady state? You yeah. still don't have a proof it does, yeah. but you can say, well, within the time that I have looked, yeah, yeah. I do not have any suggestion that it might end up. Yeah. I mean, these discussions we've had before about... Uh, a I think basically you said capitalism will ev- inevitably go into uh, inequalities and stuff. That would be such an attractor. Yes, that will be such an attractor. There is a model, uh, and I will put it online, which is a very nice one. Um, okay, so let me describe you this abstract model that, that you can run for a long time. You take a bunch of agents, let's say 10,000 of them. Mm-hmm. They have a uniformly distributed amount of money. From 1 to 100 euros, you get 3, I get 1,000. Oh, mm-hmm. I get 100, just mm-hmm. randomly distributed. Yeah. The only rule is I bump into one other random agent and exchange some random amount of money. Mm-hmm. I just throw a dice and I just take something from you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that, I'll just take what you have. Right? At a very high level, this is a very abstract representation of the global economy. Mm-hmm. Just people bump, bumping into each other, exchanging yep. money. When you run this, you very, very quickly get a power law distributed income distribution, Mm -hmm. like within a few hundred steps, Mm -hmm. where very few uh, agents have basically all the money and a vast number has nothing. And that's, the the longer you run it, the stronger it becomes. It completely gets locked into into this attractor of unequal stuff. And only when you do things like 
proportional taxation and things like that, then you can move the tractor away yeah. into a different state. Yeah. So this leads to an interesting question, right? So you, you, you basically said um, your agents bump into each other yeah. r and randomly exchange money. In the real world, there are natural resources. Sure. There are um, institutions. Yeah. Like, are contracts respected? Are yep, people yep, stealing yep. yes and no? Yep. Is the government working? Is the mm -hmm. uh, country safe and secure? So how do you know, like, how do you know whether you have to include all of these things as well in order to get, to understand whether your results are meaningful or not? Basically, it's about validation. How, how, how do you know how complex you have to describe your world f so your results are trustworthy? Well, the, the short answer is you don't. You just don't know. Um, because it's a complex system, so uh, it's chaotic. So small things, you know, the butterfly and the yeah, yeah, sure, right, that stuff, which is by the way completely misquoted, but that's uh, um, you don't. <laughs> the The goal of modeling is insight and not numbers. Yeah. So uh, if I say the goal is insight, this is a socially constructed judgment mm -hmm. of has this process taught me something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When the model has taught me something. I will immediately understand its limitations and understand why it's stupid. And then I will replace it. So in this world, the usefulness of the model is measured by the speed by which you replace it. So mm -hmm. the quicker I throw away things, the better they are because the more they teach me about the limitations of it. Mm -hmm. So because I'm not talking about predicting a value or the temperature of a steel plate when there is boiling steam on the other side, Right, uh, that would be a prediction, classical model. Yeah, it's it's about the social function of interacting with the world in a systematic, structured fashion, rather than a model that predicts a specific outcome. So it doesn't matter if it's wrong, because it is the deliberation and the negotiated knowledge that happens around that model that tells people, ah, so why on earth does this model collapse after so many years, even though we're doing everything right? Oh, wait, but there's this mechanism that well, we forgot to put in. Oh, that's interesting. So maybe that really matters. Let's see what happens there. So I, I, I take your point. Basically, what you're saying is the, the, the process of building new models itself is iterative. Yes. And so in some sense, you're running a two-level yes, simulation, exactly, right? Exactly right. <laughs> you get it exactly right. So it's the process which produces a series of models. But yes. you just said that you look at your model N in your sequence yes. of models and you see it collapses. And yep. so why does it collapse? How do you – you have to at least be able to recognize that there is a limitation or that it – whatever collapsing exactly means, right? So you have yeah. to be able to detect that there is something wrong in order to then ask the question, what do we have to change to make it better, okay. whatever better means. So. Okay, Some I, I, sane sanity yes. criteria you have to have. Oh, absolutely. So, okay, uh, now I understand your question. Okay, so there are, as I said, strict validation in the sense of natural yes, sciences no, is impossible. Of That's course. fine. Yeah. And we should not be difficult about that. No. What can I do? First, um, I will do things like timeline sanity. Is this a coherent, understandable narrative that emerges out of the model? Can I explain the sequence of actions of agents in the events that I forced exogenously in my model, maybe policy change or something, does this make sense? Do I understand this? Mm -hmm. If it's completely off and I just cannot find the logical reason, it's probably bullshit. For example, if in every other time step a particular agent makes a completely opposite argument. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. is not consistent. So yeah. what's going on there? Mm -hmm. Then 
uh, we are usually or almost simulating things that are real things that people care about, right? So the energy transition, investments, uh, changes in market, yep. uh, market structure, for example. Let's reorganize the market and see if what the policy does to it. Yep. So people already have intuitions, mm-hmm. very strong intuitions of how the world works. So you're basically giving them a mirror, computational mirror to their right. intuition. Mm-hmm. And then they have an expectation. And in my modeling process, I quite explicitly make them write it down in advance. Yeah. What is? What do you think will happen? Hypothesis. Run the computational experiment and see how it d- differs with the hypothesis. Is it the same? That's become, but then becomes dangerous because then you have conformational bias and people believe it because it says the thing they believe. Yeah. Which you didn't learn I cha- anything. I challenge them then because they say, okay, so is that really true? Can I get a counterfactual? Can I get something that does exactly the opposite? Right. And what would I have to change? Yeah. Right. What would yeah. I have to change? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. That's why I will never give you a single run. I will give you mm-hmm. a vast number of ensembles and statistical analysis and say, look, under these and these conditions, mm-hmm. it does something exactly opposite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another thing what we will do is we'll look at if it exists other models, maybe different, you know, system dynamics models, literature, mm-hmm. academic literature that says, well, economic theory suggests that this will happen. Well, this doesn't. Mm-hmm. Why not? Mm-hmm. What is the thing we added? to that mm-hmm. behavior that was not in the mm-hmm. original theory mm-hmm. that suddenly makes the behavior different. I will also And try can this be argued? Can, can this be argued? This is a consistent yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in extreme case, if you have lots of money and people, you would have to do model replication or ask somebody else to model oh, yeah. the same thing with <laughs> a different group of people, yeah. which you rarely do, but you, know, yeah. you can try that and say, do they get the same kind of, same kind of outcomes? Yeah. But you have to understand that this is really, uh, that's why I said it's a quantitative storytelling. It mm. really has a different role than physical models that have predictive power. I, I totally, yeah. The, the reason why I'm asking all of mm-hmm. this is um, to figure out how risky it is that you take the wrong conclusions. Yes. Because the model gives you a consistent story yes. that is still wrong because of a fundamental error yep. that, that give, gets you to a different, consistent, but ultimately meaningless state. Yeah. So welcome to neoclassical economics. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I'm, no, literally. I mean, yeah. Neoclassical economics cannot even conceive of a financial crisis. It's just not in the math. Mm. It's all equilibria. Mm. Now, there's a wonderful paper, and I think we can link to that later, from um, Doyle Farmer, a famous complexity scientist economist, mm. that basically has a paper in Nature that says, if we had agent-based models, we would not have had the financial crisis. Mm. Because agent-based models easily, trivially replicate boom and bust cycles. If you give them the right rules. Well, if you just, if you just describe what you see, okay. mm. you get it for free. Yeah. If you force yourself into equilibrium-based mathematics, you cannot get Right, okay. Right? So just by opening up, and then, uh, and then you can start making predictions. Yeah. And people have done some very successful predictions on markets with these things. If I would throw the word anti-fragile at you, Mm-hmm. Would this trigger something in this context here? Sure. I mean, if, if anti-fragile would mean robust or resilient, that's how I would interpret anti-fragile. Yeah. So what's the name of the guy? This is the other Marcus during editing, and the name of the guy is Nassim Taleb. There's a book, Anti-Fragile. And uh, he, he, I, I know the term. I don't, I don't know the literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, the thing is, he, he, um, robust means I think you can't break it. And anti-fragile means it thrives. It, it it thrives in the face of attempts to break you. Uh, maybe I should cut this out. I don't know enough myself. Or get help from the editing, Marcus. No, well, so I, okay. What I can say about robustness and resilience is robustness is the ability to withstand 
external shock. Yeah. So concrete is very re- robust. Yeah. Resilience is the ability to recover after yeah, yeah. a if external event has to perturb you. Yeah. And it, you don't necessarily have to come back to the same state. Mm-hmm. So that will be anti-fragile maybe to say, okay, okay, I can adapt, I can go with the flow and keep some or most of my functions as a system. And it's a, it's a discussion we're having a lot. You know, can we, How do we organize these things to become more resilient? Mm-hmm. Much rather than... So it's the adaptation versus mitigation discussion, the climate yeah. debate. Yeah. Right? yeah. Mitigation yeah. is being more robust. Adaptation is being resilient. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And can you define a set of rules or, or policies or behaviors that can handle a wider range of disturbances? So... You know, it, mm-hmm. for example, you know the, the project I was referring a number of times now with the infrastructure is really about designing a robust infrastructure strategy. So, a robust infrastructure investment strategy. Mm-hmm. So, robust in the sense that this is a sequence of investments of expensive big things that can handle the most, the broadest set of possible futures as we can get it. Right. Mm-hmm. It's never mm-hmm. going to be absolute. It's always going to be things you can't prepare for. Yeah. But of the known unknowns. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is the best I can handle. Yeah. Because, of course, it's a known unknowns. So I yeah. cannot model unknown unknowns. Yeah. Right. And, and then, of course, you implement this with various programming languages. Yeah. So, I mean, I, can say, few, I yeah. can say a few things there, which is yeah. really interesting things to, you know, for us computer nerds. Yeah. Um, for example, um, randomness and, and pseudo-randomness is super, super important. Mm-hmm. Right? Because we said that the uh, time step, a single time step of my clock is the fastest process I have. And so what I'm trying to do really with ABMs is to act as if I can replicate parallel action mm-hmm. of the real world in a seri- serial computer. Yeah. So what I do is within that time step, uh, I will have a sequence of events. First, uh, get the information, then decide, and then invest, let's say. But the, let's say I have many people or many agents making decisions. I will randomize the order of iteration. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing market simulation, this is essential because if you are the first one, let's say every single time step yeah. that gets to pick a, a finite amount of goods, you will always get the best price. Yeah. So we randomize the order of iteration. So I have to make sure that my models are fully repeatable. So I obsess about uh, data structures with, uh, with predictable iteration orders. I obsess about mm-hmm. random number generators because I want to be fully repeatable to be doing science otherwise yeah. i'm just you know running making numbers yeah uh, and that gives us into gets us into trouble I, I got burned for example during my phd thesis because i did not realize that the java hash map actually does not have a predictable iteration order okay and i used yeah. it extensively yeah. and then i couldn't reproduce my simulations and mm. then i was like oh damn mm-hmm. and it turns out that uh, some languages will have multiple different random number generators for mm-hmm. different subfunctions that yeah. you're not aware of. Yeah, cr- cryptographic ones that are good and the other one that sucks. <laughs> exactly, stuff like that. So you can get really <laughs> yeah. burned on that, on yeah. your, on your re- replicability. Yeah. Other interesting tension that we have to deal with is that, and it's a cliche, but a vast number of social scientists can't program. Yes. It's still a superpower for us nerds. Yes. But they do have the insights in what's going on. Yeah. And so it's always finding that way to bring non-programmers to express themselves computationally. And so you will see that I will almost always choose a sloppy but understandable algorithm Mm. over an efficient and elegant one. And in that sense, I can always throw more computers at it, but I can usually not throw more people at it. Yeah. 
And of course, my listeners will notice that this is the point where I use the word domain-specific language, and yes. so did you, but we've already discussed this yes, briefly I before would... we switched the microphone on, so I can just forget this here. <laughs> I, 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 I would love to have a good domain-specific language <laughs> right. to make this easy for people. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else? We also have to deal with incredibly large uncertainty spaces. So uh, even a small model might have 50, 60, 100 variables. So it's computationally challenging. It's computationally challenging because first, I know that I have to do statistically significant number of repetitions. Yep. Even per same parameter settings, I will get different outcomes because of the chaotic yep. nature and I might get really crazy outliers even with a repeated run. Yeah. Then I have maybe a 100 dimensional parameter space yeah. within which the ranges could be huge because yeah, yeah. I simply, I know that I don't know. So, you know, having hundreds of millions of simulations to cover even a part, small part of my parameter space is not strange. Now, usually you cannot do that. Yeah. So we end up being very nerdy about things like sampling, statistical sampling, Latin mm -hmm. hypercube sampling. We will do orthogonal sampling. We will do Sobol kind of sampling, all sorts of advanced statistical techniques to actually still extract mm -hmm. A signal. <laughs> a signal from the parameter space, yeah. not so much the run itself. Yeah. Because we know that this, it, it could be highly variable yeah. across the parameter space. Mm -hmm. And so that mapping is, you know, from parameter to output is sometimes really painful. So there's a lot of serious math going on in your work as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And we actually have colleagues that are fully specialized in uncertainty analysis mm -hmm. that basically don't do anything else but just really deeply geek out on what is the best way to sample, what is the best way to find mm -hmm. the pattern. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of heavy data analysis coming in, a lot of machine learning even to identify runs that are similar or end states that are similar to each other, even mm -hmm. though they come from different bits of the parameter space. Mm -hmm. um, and so there it becomes really very techy and very nerdy. Mm -hmm. Do you have, uh, is it challenging? So again, I know that the, the embedded systems people struggle with uh, handling discrete and continuous models in the same mm -hmm. framework system and have them interact in a meaningful way. I mean, yes. there's a few relatively trivial interactions, but even the dense time and discrete time and getting... So are there challenging challenges in terms of getting these multi-modeling approaches together into one system? Oh my God, you just touched my favorite nerdy topic. This is... Uh, so multi-modeling is totally the thing I, I think is the future... Uh, of modeling, yeah. absolutely. Scott Page, uh, person I was very happy to have on my uh, PhD committee, just published a model. He's famous for his book, The Difference, because he talks about the vision of the crowds and how more is different. And he also recently published a book, How We Need Multiple Kinds of Models to Understand the World, which right. is yeah. totally what I'm about. Yeah. There is a tremendous number of methodological challenges on multi-modeling. So you touched upon time. So yeah. time, discrete versus continuous. Yeah. I don't think there's a universal solution for that. You really have to think about when I'm synchronizing my models and if I'm doing step-by-step, step, let's say system integration, so integrator time versus time step, that's nonsense, we know that. Scale. What mm -hmm. happens yeah. when your scale operates on kilometer scale yeah. and the other one operates at the meter scale? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not even going to talk about things like unit alignment because you know that crashed Mars lander, right? So Yeah, but that's relatively simple. Uh, relatively uh, yeah then we need need to talk about ontological alignment. Is the meaning yeah. the same? Yeah. Right? Maybe it's a kilogram, but it's a fundamentally different ontology in one model than the other. And can I still do that then? How do I deal with uncertainty propagation? Because some models 
will be more sensitive to, you know, if ABM is sensitive to your parameterization being chaotic, mm-hmm. an optimization uh, might or might not get stuck in the local optima. Mm-hmm. So what happens then? What if you then have to use a GA, for example, to find your genetic algorithm, sorry, genetic algorithm yeah. to find a non-local optimum? Yeah. But then you're introducing so much more randomness into your model, you have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Um, just software-wise, there are so many trouble. Um, you know, uh, there is multi-models that run sequentially, so sort of batch kind of processing, where one model does a computation, passes on to next one. The model I'm run- creating right now um, for this infrastructure project is an agent model which says, okay, I have a vision of X number of years into the future, because now I'm, let's say, short-sighted, I see two years into the future, and there is going to be two events that are likely to happen. So two companies might want to bring in a new technology. Mm-hmm. Can I handle that? For every event, I ask a technical submodel, which in this case, it's NetLogo yeah. talking to Python. Yeah. Hey, Python, what will this infrastructure grid, how would it react if I would add this new demand? Yeah. And what would the investment be, technical investment, in order to alleviate that problem? So it means that I'm calling... My agents are calling the technical submodels mm-hmm. many thousand times per even single time step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, just having your computational architecture ready yeah. to communicate at that speed yeah. becomes very difficult. So, what do you use in terms of uh, you? You just mentioned calling into Python. So, yeah. and you probably, I, I could imagine some of these agent frameworks are maybe Java based. Yeah, perhaps. Um, so you have also. Uh, heterogeneity in ter- heterogeneity in terms of programming languages, Absolutely. infrastructures, middleware, whatever. Absolutely. So there is, um, again, to be technical, which is always sure. fun. The classical solution to this, and it's a very much a military solution, is the HLA, so high-level architectures. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're laughing, right? And they actually work surprisingly well in the military. Sure, but it's like, it's, it's, it's like... Yeah. Yes. It sounds exactly. over-engineered. Right. No, but it is by default over-engineered, yeah, right. and yeah. you have to have your controllers and schedulers and everything. Yeah. Um, I've been sort of trying to, you know, publishing recently on this notion of multi-model ecosystems, mm-hmm. which is very much how open source community works, how mm-hmm. R works, how Python works with packages. Is can we do this for the scientific world? Where, and this cannot be done with HLA. So you have to be really picking and choosing, you know, uh, through this ecosystem. Which part do I need for which problem? Mm. So one thing we're working on is um, publish-subscribe architectures mm-hmm. that actually work very nicely. Mm. DDS, look at DDS. So we are using uh, a thing we built inside the uh, okay. faculty called Sim0MQ. So it's based on the 0MQ mm-hmm. protocol yeah. um, where you define messages yeah. between pairwise combinations of models. So of my age models. models. So I have simulations. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm, yeah. So I have simulations. Let's say I have an agent-based simulation that does my investment behavior. Yeah. I have a technical submodel yeah. that can respond with a load flow calculation yeah. to a specific changes in the architecture. Yeah. I might have a another submodel that tells me something about the CO2 emissions of a particular technology mm. because it's doing maybe life cycle assessments. Mm. And the nice thing about here is that also scientifically you are doing separation of concerns. Mm-hmm. So I can just talk to the environmental people, make sure my agents can understand an answer in tons of CO2, and I don't really care how it's computed. Mm. Yeah, That, of course, makes it, you know, you got to trust your colleagues. <laughs> and yeah, well, but uh, divide and conquer, you can't do right, everything. Right, right. Yeah. And, and so here PopSub really works very well. Yeah. 
and it can be done very efficiently. We're, my colleagues are boasting about two million messages per second. Mm -hmm. um, if they can really keep it up, <laughs> uh, then that will be pretty awesome. So yeah. we do have some preliminary testing going there. Yeah. Uh, there is also colleagues in Italy uh, doing uh, near real-time uh, smart grid mm -hmm. computation. And they actually run these uh, real-time simulators, like physical compute mm -hmm. um, devices that will do give you gr uh, grid load flow computation, local grid. And they actually use MQTT, of all things, which mm -hmm. I was shocked. Mm -hmm. And they have their counterparts are in China mm -hmm. running uh, their part of the grid, and they're doing the communication between models just like MQTT. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah. What this tells me is these are... Uh, not uh, a few hundred line Java programs. These no. are usually bigger. These are monsters, yeah. Things, and so you don't do five thousands of them per year. You do a few because it's probably a bit of effort to develop all these things. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, if I have a good, smart master student, I can develop a useful model in half a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But usually slower. Uh, these are major efforts because you need to, um, you know. Models like ontologies are like underwear, right? You never like to use other people's. It never quite fits. It's also kind of gross. <laughs> yeah. It's just, just wrong, right? Yeah. And so because these models are so highly specific, the specific stakeholder, their beliefs, yeah. their assumptions, their boundaries, it's hard to be modular. Although I would suspect that this is more true for the agent-based part than for the physical system oh, simulation part. Absolutely. Because absolutely. they're... Absolutely. You that do is, a yeah. Simulink model of some control algorithm, and that's, that's it. it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we would, for example, routinely tap into this thing called MatPower, which is an Octave or MATLAB script that does load flow calculations or yeah. approximation of load flow. Yeah. So it does a DC load flow for uh, AC grids. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually very, very good. You give it a, a topology, you give it a load, it will just exactly tell you what the flows are. Yeah. And so we developed like connectors between our right. preferred tool, NetLogo. And that thing, and that's, that's just nice. So you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. So you gave a TED talk at TEDx Rotterdam. Delft? Rotterdam. Rotterdam. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, everything around the corner here. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, and there you um, the the main uh, point of your talk, I think, were a couple of insights about mm -hmm. these kinds of systems yes. that you kind of uh, uh, um, figured out or, or or distilled out. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about those a little sure. bit. Um, I think one of them, I'm not sure it was an insight, but one of them was this intractability that you have to run it in order to figure it out. You can't yes. <laughs> predict, right? Yes. So you have to do the, you have to pay with computation power. Not just computation power, but the the greater insight, I think, there, and this is going to be trivial to anybody who is a computer scientist or knows software, but is that, you know, intractability is a thing. Mm -hmm. And people my you know my experience lots of decision makers are not aware I, of this ah, i see what you're saying so just being made aware right how every single action you take yes. closes futures and opens new ones right and just being very cognizant about that because right. so like once you've taken this path you you can't get over there exactly. anymore exactly yeah, and yeah, this yeah. is particularly the case in the domain i work in so industrial and infrastructure networks where you know when you pull the trigger a billion euros get spent Right. And a freaking chemical factory gets built. Yeah. Right? It's a five-year process before that thing stands. But once it's there and you're a billion euros later, it's going yeah. to be there for 50 years. And yeah. even even multinationals can't afford to just YOLO one. They just have to really think about this and just do it and commit to it and that's it. Yeah. 
you don't just YOLO a, hide, a highway. You, YOLO? Yeah, you only live once. You know, ah, and, right. yeah, I'm trying to be fashion, fashion, <laughs> fashionable and fail. Yeah, yeah. You know your memes. You cannot just go ahead and just randomly put up a highway. Yeah. Right? Or just a power line. So these things have massive consequences. And it takes... People kind of know it, but when you tell them, look, there is a word for this. Mm. The eyes go like, oh... So right. that's why this is hard. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And when point. you make them cognizant of this fact, then they suddenly start saying, oh, but maybe we should run some models first, mm-hmm. which of course is job security for me, but it's sure. uh, it's also the acknowledgement to them just how hard their job is. Right, yeah, yeah. It's like, look, this is really hard with a capital H. Right. right, so like I don't even expect that you can just think about it for 10 minutes and come up with a good solution. Exactly. By the way, this brings me to this other question. <laughs> you know, we t- joked about politicians before. Yeah. It's one thing to be able to tell them how hard it is and try to offer them a good solution, mm-hmm. which they then ignore because it's against their politics. Yes. That must be a frustrating part of your job sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. it's... Okay, so I'm I'm sort of face palming right now. There is a two par- two coal powered power plants in the Maslakta two, so the west of the port. Mm-hmm. My colleagues have been talking to the power companies that built it for the last ten years. Guys, please do not build the coal powered power plant, a brand new one. Don't. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but because we've already invested so much into it, and then the double face palm comes. He said, guys. This is the stuff we tell our first-year students. You, you're falling into the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. You're throwing good money after the bad. Yes, yes, but my career depends on it. And those two stupid things get built, mm. which locks Netherlands for another 50 years into massive CO2 emissions. And we could have, with that money, built massive wind parks or whatever. And that hurts because you see it coming, you know it, and they still do it. Same thing when the CO2 market was introduced. Right? By the way, did your agents predict that? We could t- we thought yes specifically we run simulations of the CO2 markets. No, no, I mean that the guys make the stupid decision. Um, this was not we didn't model them because okay. they did, did not want to have us that model okay. because that would just hurt. Yeah, we have modeled the CO2 market introduction. Actually, my colleagues made the Financial Times with it. We were quite proud of that. Mm-hmm. We basically said, guys, market is the most stupid thing you could possibly do for CO2. Okay, but EU says, oh my God, markets are awesome because markets are awesome. Because markets are awesome. That was basically the logic. And then we see how that went to hell. Because everybody, companies, everybody was screaming for a tax. Give me a predictable rise right. in tax yeah, yeah. that reduces all the uncertainty about green investments. And markets introduce tremendous uncertainty. So your, 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 your proposed solution, based on simulations, I guess, was tax. Absolutely. A predictable, yeah. strong, I- increasing tax. Predictable is the keyword, yeah. because then you can do your NPV calculations as a company, and decide. N- sorry, net present value computer, okay. yeah. and your return on investment calculations to say, you know what? If I do now spend that billion euros, yeah. it's going to pay back guaranteed. They have no problem spending money, yeah. if they know it's going to be fine. Yeah, but you don't spend money on an uncertain market, right? Yeah, yeah, and especially the one which is badly managed as a CO2 market, where millions of credits yeah, get yeah. lost and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. All right, insights. More insights, um, yes. Uh, Bottom-up, I think, was one of them. Yes, bottom-up. So um, It's just the agent story, basically. Uh, yes, but more than that. Um, we are traditionally 
especially I think well in the, in the Western culture, as far as I can tell. Also because of the sort of the substance philosophy that we talked about, um, and the traditional way of thinking, we are very much have grown in this it's all knowable kind of world, right? Mm -hmm. So the 50s especially were good into that. Oh, you know, the science and technology is triumphing. It can be right. all, it's all knowable, it's deterministic, we can just figure it's it out. It's controllable. It's controllable, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And the age of complexity, as, as, as Hawkins said, is about accepting mm -hmm. the lack of control. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite, you know, one of the favorite observations there is that the only thing more dangerous than total lack of control is the illusion of perfect of control. control yeah, yeah. Mm. When you think you got it covered and yeah. you have no idea what's yeah. going on. Yeah. And that bottom-up thinking, complexity thinking, uh, chaos, emergence, path dependency, observer mm -hmm. dependency mm -hmm. makes one humble. Mm -hmm. Makes one realize that, yes, this is hard. Yes, you can't control it. So, for example, discussion on optimization versus satisfying versus optimizing. Right, so optimization is the wrong way to think about it. Satisfying, I think, is a much better what way. What is think. that? So uh, when you're optimizing, you have to say, "I have to find the best solution." Yeah. yeah. Oh, and the other when one is good enough solution. When it's a good enough solution. Yeah, yeah, so complexity yeah. to me is all about good enough. Yeah. Otherwise, you over constrain your system. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the message of the bottom up is really that you know, welcome to the world of complexity. Welcome to the world of unknowable. Mm -hmm. But it's cool. It's okay. Mm -hmm. We can we can deal with this. But we do have to change our requirements and what we expect of systems. And the way we model. The way we model, but also the way how we think about policy, the way yeah. how we think about, you know, the classical Christian Democrat, at least in the Netherlands, response to anything is, oh, just forbid it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, sure, and that has solved things when? Yeah. Yeah, now it's illegal. Awesome. And now then what? Yeah. Right? So it's not solving the actual problem. So I find, let's say, the Mexican and the, and the Portuguese approach to, for example, the drug problem. Is the only same way. Treat it as a health problem, not a criminal problem. Legalize the damn, the damn hell out of everything. Yeah. Get the criminals out of the loop and treat the addicted. And suddenly it just goes away. Because, you know, responsible adults are fine. You decriminalize the thing. But that's the that's to me is bottom-up thinking. What is the cause? What's the causal process leading to the structure? But you're basically just saying um, make sure you understand what's actually going on and then be commonsensical well, about it. And that's exactly uh, right. Yeah. But, but that's that, what that, we're not doing. Exactly. But that is exactly the point. Yeah. So in some sense, what good is your recommendation if people just don't do it because they just don't do it? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh, you, however, I, I do see that times are changing in that sense. Yeah. And computer says yes. You know, computer says no. yeah. yeah. The moment it's shiny and it's moving on the screen, sure. it's true, which is sad, but you know, but yeah. so we do see that okay, we're doing serious science here, right? Yeah, you know, quote unquote, right? In the, you might know the little meme with the little penguin that you know, can I please do science? Uh, no, anyway, I'll link it. Okay. It's 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 <laughs> an Antarctic researcher that has a penguin show up and just kind of looks at them. Okay, uh, I'm here to do science. Because it has science on it, and we can tell you yeah. a coherent story why this is what happened. People go, okay. Yeah. Even though we have the whole loss of faith in experts and stuff going on, I was going to say yeah. that happens in yeah. certainly public. But I find that decision makers who really have to do, make the actual decision, they yeah, realize they oh, want. Eh, yeah, we yeah. need a bit more than just yeah, intuition. Yeah, yeah. Fail gracefully is another Fail, one. Yes, absolutely essential. One thing that our society really sucks at is accepting that evolution is mainly about fucking up. Mm -hmm. 
evolution is mainly stuff that dies and every now and then something works mm -hmm. and we have so glorified success mm -hmm. because it's so rare that experimentation messing about gracefully failing is not an option yet if you want to learn yeah. to learn yeah. you must make mistakes yeah and that is completely taken out making mistakes is it's penalized it should be encouraged but you earlier you said that these um decisions are so expensive that you can't afford to make mistakes so how does that fit together with that with fits that fits being knowing when to fail and how to fail so for example what i what i find fascinating and many of my colleagues who work in this field are you know share this view is so we're going to spend 10 billion euros on a thing, but we won't spend 50,000 euros on a modeling study. Mm -hmm. It's like, really? 0.0001%? Yeah, yeah. Really? How? How? Why don't you, you know? Yeah, yeah. Really? Just spend a bit of money, spend a bit of time thinking about what am I doing. Yeah, and then fail, fail, fail in the simulation. Fail in the simulation, exactly. <laughs> right, Find yeah. the obviously stupid things, things you shouldn't be doing yeah. that you can at least figure out in a model that are already much better than just thinking about it. Yeah. Right, yeah. and then and still, there's no guarantees, of course, but that also brings us to this notion of I think the anti-fragile thing you mentioned. When you're making these investments, these decisions, try to make them in a way that they are as modular, as flexible, mm. as future-proof as you can. Yeah, right. So the opportunity cost is often forgotten, but it's very good to spend sometimes a bit more money yeah. to enable flexibility and openness in the future. Yeah. And right. we forget that because we penny-wise pound foolish sometimes. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Grow is another one? Grow, yes. Um, okay, so what I find fascinating, human civilization is 20,000 years old, 30,000 years old. Depends exactly how you define civilization, okay. right? But let's whatever. Say, let, yeah. Let's say modern, modern Homo sapiens is something like 200,000 years old. Yeah. If I did my math right, it's about, 2,000 generations or maybe 4,000 generations ago. It's not a lot. Yeah. Your True. average petri dish of bacteria does that in a day, mm. maybe two days. So it is evolutionarily considering an instant. It's a blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. And 200,000 years ago, you and me would be sitting around the campfire sharpening stone tools, mm. talking about the god of thunder, right? And being afraid of being eaten by a tiger. Yeah. And here we are, right? Surrounded by computers, uh, uh, fully internet connected, truly globalized, you know, a spaceship Earth, and we're flying it. And that fact that you have to grow into things is, I think, something that our society forgets. Because we want instant gratification. We want it to be done today. We want to have perfectly functional, complex system be created at once. And... Um, There is, I forgot his name now, a um, very nice quote that says that, you know, every complex system that's designed from scratch to be complex invariably fails. Mm -hmm. yes. You have to make a simple system and then slowly grow it into complexity. Yeah. Internet. Internet, exactly. Classical example. But not just that. Anything. Yeah. Governments, religions, uh, waterworks in this country, any kind of tech, anything that humans do evolves And being aware of the fact that it's growing and evolving, even though it seems static, I yeah. think that's key to, to thinking in terms of processes of society and not just current, current especially zero-sum game states. Since you mentioned 
complex. Uh, what do you think? Uh, is our society too complex? I mean, not that we have a choice, probably. Yeah, right. But, <laughs> but I mean, maybe we do, right? Maybe we should actively work on simplifying certain things because then they become more tractable, more controllable, right? Assuming. So there is an interesting discussion to be had there. So I think our society should become more complex but less complicated. So let me elaborate on that. Uh -huh. There is a wonderful paper by uh, Alan Tainter and Hoekstra that talk about the, uh, it's called uh, su Supply-Side Sustainability. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you should really try to you know look it up. Uh, it basically talks about the collapse of the Roman Empire from a complexity perspective. Joseph Tainter. Yes. Yes. And so what I, had him, I had him on my show, by the way. Really? Yes, oh, of course. Wonderful. I, sh I didn't realize, I should find that. <laughs> so what they say is that why did the Roman Empire collapse? And one of the reasons was increasing complicatedness. It was more... They called it complexity. Uh, they, no, but they mean complexity is a slightly different thing. So what they said is that their society failed to become more complex. It failed to create more structures that are easier to maintain. So the increase in complicatedness yeah. gets your transaction costs. The maintenance cost becomes high. Exactly. Yes. And a more complex society is simpler because it relies more on self-organization, more on emergence, more of steering from bottom up rather than top-down command and control mm -hmm. and thus becomes cheaper and more efficient to operate. Mm -hmm. Classical example, you go to a butcher's shop, okay? The health regulation demands smooth floors so that they can be cleaned and sterilized. Mm -hmm. Work safety regulation requires a rugged, <laughs> yeah, yeah. rugged floors yeah, to yeah. prevent accidents. from. Yes. So what do you do? Yeah. We freeze up society by being complicated. Mm -hmm. Whereas you could also say, the law, law sh could say, make sure you're safe and clean. Figure it out. Yeah. For example, I, I, mean, I don't know if this is a good law, but, yeah, yeah. you know, Stuff like that. So maybe for every law that we bring into being, two laws should be removed just to get that sort of... So yes, I think more complexity is not bad. More complicatedness is a problem. I think it's really... Uh, we have to be careful about terminology because, for example, I think... For example, the tax code, right? Mm -hmm. The tax code... I don't know how it is in the Netherlands, but in it's Germany... It's horrible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, horrible. It's everywhere, but... Yeah. <laughs> so um, it is... Be because it is so, let's say, detailed and big... You probably call it complicated. I would call it complicated, yes. yes. It has um, the, the, the various different rules that interact in ways that are hard to predict, yes. which leads to emergent behaviors, Absolutely. which basically yeah. is loopholes, yes. which is why I would call it complex. Yes. Now, it's a different kind of complex than the self-organizing bottom-up bottom complex. True. So that's why I would call it complex. So, yeah. But I think um, that a lot of the problems we have in our society is because our rules are so complicated slash complex that we as a society can no longer deterministically make rules. Yes. So in other words, it's like this computer security, right? Yes. For a computer to be secure, everything has to be perfect, whereas to be attackable, you only need one flaw. Exactly. It's like with the loopholes in yeah, the tech yeah, system. Yeah, exactly. Right? And I think a lot of political capital gets lost because people say everything's unfair where in reality it's just complicated and the people who think about it and search for loopholes will find them yes. inevitably because it is so complex. Yes. I think that's a major problem. Absolutely. And the uh, to me this stems again from this top-down command and control yes. 
paradigm we come from. I, yes. You know, micromanage the hell out of everything. We know exactly. it doesn't work. Tr trying to make complex rule to be just. In Germany, everything yes. has to be just, right? Which is fair And enough. of course, it, it just makes other people unjust. Yes. Because you can't make everything to be just. Yep. It's impossible. It, 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 exactly. And the, this notion of, okay, so there are going to be explicit moral choices yeah. and normative choices. And I do think if you can rethink the fundamental structure of the control systems you have in your society, so yeah. changing them to accept the complexity and, for example, strive for functional performance rather than rule adherence. And resilience. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if you say, I don't care how, but if you're richer than this, you have to pay this fraction of income, figure it out. Yeah. Something like, I don't know, I mean, I'm not a tax expert. And yeah, yeah. No, none of this is trivial or easy. But yeah. I, to me, that will be the challenge also for the sustainability transition because we are so locked in in all these dependencies, exactly what you described, and not just you know, in, in tax systems, but yeah, also yeah. in manufacturing, in, the, in markets, and all of that stuff. Uh, And then sometimes we add so much unnecessary complexity. Like yes. in, in the energy system, like we, 15 years ago, you know, the Netherlands has, has liberalized its electricity market and forced unbundling. Yeah. So you have now energy suppliers must be a different company than transmission companies, yeah, yeah, different yeah. than... The, it's like really, I, is this really brought us anything in this particular case? I only made it worse yeah, yeah. and more expensive. It's like, why did we have to do this? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, there's not only bad things, but it's... it's we. In the name of ideology, right? Mm. Of, oh my God, free markets, you know? So it's like, you know, the number of people who have died in the name of a merciful, loving God. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> or in the, in the name of the open market. and free market, you know? It's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. Which, again, I wouldn't have a problem, of less of a problem, if it was up there. So, okay, we believe this is a good thing. Screw you, we're just going to do it. If they would say that. Right. Yes. Because then, okay, it's a right. clear choice. I can yeah. agree or not agree with yeah, it, yeah. but it's not. It's like, it's... we're going to liberate the hell out of you by bombing into pieces. It's like, no. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. It's... It's, it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're getting, as, as you can uh, tell, dear listener, from the increasing level of philosophicness, <laughs> um, yeah. we're getting closer to the end. You mentioned that it might be a good idea to kind of close the loop to the beginning with a yes. few interesting uh, aspects of science. I yes. don't quite know what you meant by that, but uh, go ahead. I'm... So we talked about, you know, simplicity, complicatedness, and complexity, right? Yeah. These are interesting things to yes. just even consider as, you know, as we talked about now, so sort of simple laws of simple rules, right? So one of the things that struck me as I was getting into this literature is the difference between functional and structural simplicity, mm -hmm. right? So simplicity is not simple. Simplicity is really complicated. And do you want to think things What do you to, mean by simplicity okay, is complicated? So, well, in the sense that There's multiple ways to be simple. Functional simplicity is my light switch. It has a simple function, right, but it has okay. a tremendously complex structure right. behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So versus a rock, right? Rock oh, has right. a simple structure, but I can build churches out of it. I could grind my spices with it, or I can throw it at somebody. Yeah. Or I can have it be my pet rock, right? And yeah, everything. Yeah. And so Medicine. this idea of simple structures that have broad number of functions, and we need, I think, more of that. Mm -hmm. The programming language people would call this orthogonality. You have a language with very few concepts, but mm -hmm. they're very flexibly combinable to create new things. Oh, right. I was not aware of that. So that's interesting. Yeah, so that's that's a thing deserves, I think, more thinking. Mm -hmm. um, one of the other things that I wanted to raise, we didn't really get to that, is 
there's a mo- movement in science recently called post-normal science, mm-hmm. PNS. Uh, Futnovich and Ravitz are really pushing this. And what they say is, look, this is not about abandoning science. So normal science in the sense that uh, normal meaning value-free objective, sure, it sort of exists, but not really. So let's not beat about the bush and be explicit about the fact that uh, all the things we're doing are normative, are value and quality rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And one solution is qualitatively better than the other. And we can't really maybe put a number to it, but we all kind of agree. Mm. Right? I mean, do we agree? You, I mean, that's often the question. Sure, right? but then it's then let's at least be explicit about yes. the fact this is something we need to agree about. Yeah. Yes. And uh, there is, you know, it's increasing literature that says, you know, you really need to s- seriously take this stuff and say, look, as we're making policies, making decisions, we must think about the normative and qualitative aspects of it. Mm. And mm. yes, we may never agree. Yeah, yeah. But at least we have to not act as if the white elephant is not in the room. The, yeah. There is a similar thing going on in journalism mm-hmm. where traditionally journalism is uh, objective. Yes. And uh, I don't know what the buzzword is, but people say, well, th- there is no such thing as an objective journalist. Journalists all have their own opinions and yeah. biases, so let's be open about it exactly. and, and make it clear from which perspective you're looking at a, at a topic. Exactly, and that's science is in that sense not much different, especially when you move into the socio-technical stuff. I was going to say, it's maybe yes. a little bit different in the hard natural sciences. Sure, you, know, you, can, you can study objective, but even there, right? Yeah, yeah. The choice of what to study, what not to study, right? Absolutely. Why, you know, string th- theory, maybe, or why do we still not have a medi- medicine for malaria? It's not because it's rocket science. No, but there, I think the problem is clearly an economic one, where yeah, nobody okay. would even claim it's a scientific issue, right? Right, but it's in, okay, sure, but it's it's the same kind of thing, right? It's like, well, that's just kind of well, but that so that, that, that this raises. I think the question is whether we have to go as far as kind of changing the nature of science as you say with pns kind of in some sense or the whether or whether we should, should should just say well there is science and then there is politics and there is economics and in the real world they interact so 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 what what they're arguing with post-normal science is not necessarily changing the nature of science because you still have to do yeah. verifiable falsifiable knowledge yeah. but you must be explicit about the fact that it has subjective normative components yeah. and just rationally deal with the fact that maybe you're not rational yeah. and that we are, we are emotion and value loaded True. and all of those things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, that's the thing that I really wanted to raise because it's close to my heart is that you, know, you do have to explicitly care about these things. Now, and, look, and to connect this to your work, you might put some of these biases into your agents. Oh, quite explicitly. Yeah, we actually have tools for that. Okay. Uh, there is this framework uh, called Maya, developed by my colleague uh, Amina Gurbani. Uh, she's using uh, Eleanor Ostrom's institutional theory, which is, and Ostrom is so, such an underappreciated mind. Um, she talked about commons and how commons get arranged. So, she talked about institutions a lot. So, from mm-hmm. habits, norms, culture to formal institutions. And a lot of these things are institutions, right? We, we adopt roles and behaviors and strategies together. And we actually can model now how you know how you change when you are at work and then go home mm-hmm. because a different institutional setting happens yeah. and you, your behavior changes because of that. Mm-hmm. And so there are some very interesting things there. Plus, we are doing simulations where we have agents figure out their own institutions. Mm-hmm. So we have ABM simulations that figure out new rules that govern themselves mm-hmm. uh, because we have this formal grammar. So it's a mathematically consistent grammar that we have for institutions. Uh, and then you can they, they come up with very interesting things uh, one particular model we did 
showed us that that the system of these negotiating agents works superior if there is a so-called anti-agent. If there's an asshole in a simulation, <laughs> everybody collaborates better, which okay. is resonates closely to absolutely to to real life. But yeah. you know, agents really did emerge, and the simulation stabilizes. Okay, when due to randomness, mm -hmm. a a counteracting agent appears. Mm -hmm. So that's like, oh wait, so that's that's that was weird. Mm -hmm. um, and this allows me also to talk about things like to have made models of child labor in India, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the e-waste recycling, no? to us nerds, that's a, you know, we throw away so much electronics. Yeah. And we could show there that a well-meaning Western company trying to get good, safe electronics recycling has no chance there because of the entrenched institutions of both mm -hmm. uh, child labor, of institutional corruption, mm -hmm. and patronage, right? So you, you get into this family, you're literally sold into this family, and you've got to pay back that thing that, you know, that brought you into the city. Yeah. And it's almost impossible to break that with a traditional perspective on, well, but it's safer, better for them. Yeah, but they have to wait three months for their money to come yeah, back yeah. from, and they can't afford that. Yeah. Even if they wanted to, they can't. And so, you know, getting these kind of insights really is, you know, painful because it just confirms things that really are just hard to change, but also offers ideas that, you know, maybe you can fix the world. So did you go into this line of work because you're a pessimist or did the work make you a pessimist? Because you have to be a pessimist, uh, right? <laughs> because there's not, I mean, you, you, you uncovered that things basically really are fucked up. Do you have to be pessimist? No, I wouldn't say you have to be pessimist to go into this. Um, I'm an engineer, right? I want to fix things. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, yes, I'm an optimist, even though sustainability debates get me down. Mm -hmm. But I'm fundamentally an optimist with the idea that if I don't try to unfuck it, nobody else will. Mm. And luckily, it's not just me, but many people sure. are yeah. in that same mode of thinking. And what I really, really find fascinating, and you know, I think it's so amazing, the fact that kids are skipping school to go protest about climate change, oh my God. Although it's something the experts should solve, right? You heard about the guy in Germany, Christian Lindner. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, that's who <laughs> got us into. I mean, yes, but, exactly. Right. If you guys had done that, we, we would be here. Exactly. <laughs> but the fact that it is the young young people waking up and saying, "Okay, you guys, no, this is not going to work." And if I see all my, uh, you know, uh, young students coming through my uh, through my classes, and they're so passionate, there's so much energy there, and they all know how bad it is, right? They they know they're going to live into that. I mean, I, even I'm I'm going to live into it. I'm yeah, not sure. even that old. Yeah. But there is, the time is right. I, I feel it in my bones. And many people around me really say the same thing. It's like the, the time is right. You mean it will change? In the sense that there is a momentum in society, I feel, an undercurrent. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not as visible as maybe the racism and the the hate that's very visible and politicized. Yeah. But the fact that on a rainy day, really shitty weather, 40,000 people show up to protest for climate in Amsterdam, mm. while it's raining cats and dogs, mm. more. that's something, right? Mm. If I see 98%, 95% of all my students are working on sustainability topics, not because they have to, but that's just because they, but that's why they're there. Mm. And they're passionate about this. And I'm like, mm, that's, these, are, these are important signs. Mm. And these guys don't know anything else than that they have to work on sustainable solutions. That's the baseline. Mm. You know, saying politically incorrect things, but the baby boomers need to, you know, sod off and die. Or at least go go to Mallorca <laughs> go and just yeah, yeah, just because you can see that 
in you know in the organizations I'm dealing with, it's the subtop. So guys that are say up to fifty. Yeah. No, I should not call name years because it's not just the really age, but it's the mentality. But it's the subtop that really wants to change. Top experts, almost, but not CEO level people really want to change. But it's the is the top that's really not the problem because they don't dare. Mm. There seems to be this thing that you know I'm going to go to pension. I want my bonus and whatever. Mm. Not of course everybody, but that no, seems no, to be it's, it's you know I'm these generalizing. Things are always but, general, sure. Um, but there seems to yeah. be that that tendency and and they don't dare. They're just too old to dare. And this is not a fun statement, but I think that's really the tr truth. Yeah. But everything behind them really wants to change. And, you know, change how they organize communities, comp companies, ministries, more social, more acceptable, more inclusive. Yeah. Something is going on. And I really do hope that you know, in that sense, I'm, I'm optimistic. Even yeah. though you have, you know, like Trump and all that kind of bullshit, but yeah. that's a catalyst, right? If you see, yeah, I, I, yeah, if you see the, you know, in the U.S., like the Run for Something campaign, there's never been so much female participation in politics since then. Then since he came on board, because it's like people are like, wait, sure. wait, 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 wait. Yeah. We, now, now it's serious. Although, by the way, <laughs> this is another one of these systems which have been so um, complicated that it's hard to see. How the Democrats can win with all gerrymandering and all of this shit? Oh right? yeah, yeah, but that's. I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, this sure. is another kind of corner into which the system has moved, and yes. if you will, an attractor through corruption. Yes. You know where they lock themselves up. Absolutely. Yep. And so it's hard to see how even so. So this is where my pessimism comes from, mm. because the systems for decision making have been locked up into these corners. Yeah. You first have to, you might have heard about Larry Lassick, Lawrence Lassick, who is um, working on getting um, basically big money out of politics so that, mm -hmm. in the US, yeah. so that uh, you again have basically one person, one vote, and not one dollar, one vote. Yes. So it's ba he says, unless we get corruption solved, we, we're never going to, we don't have to discuss climate or anything. And so, if you will, it's it's like a, even a, a meta level higher. The, yes. the, the systems for decision making are attracted to one of these <laughs> unfortunately stable attractor positions, yes. and we need to get those out. Yes. And so it's it's I think it's much worse than quote just yep. right putting agreed. lots of quotation marks the 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 climate problem. Yeah, agreed. So. Agreed. I mean, we you know society and the planet needs fixing. We know yeah. that. Yeah. The on the other <sighs> side. Um, there, I think, never was a time before that we had the knowledge at this level, mm. had the technology at this level, and had, far more importantly, the interconnectedness and the shared mental space that yeah. we have through the, through the internet to collectively do something about it. Mm. And that is something unprecedented. So we, mm. as a human species, sure. has never had this ability to be a hive mind. Yeah. Right? We are... A social insect, right? We yeah. are a social species, yeah. and this offers. In that sense, I'm I'm positive, right? And because you have to be positive, you don't really have a choice, right? Yes. Because otherwise, you might as well just give up and just be hedonistic and screw it. But that's right. not, yeah, that's not the way forward, right? And humanity, as a species, is tremendously resilient. I have no mm. doubts about that. Yeah. yeah. Weather. The current civilization yeah, yeah. with its globalized right. 
geopolitic geopolitics yeah. will make the end of the century, yeah. I have serious doubts. Yes, that that is that is absolutely true. And what that will mean, it's anybody's guess. Yeah. I was gonna uh, say uh, about 30 seconds ago that your positive outlook, your optimism, is a good place to stop. But now you said something negative again. But it's <laughs> not negative. No, pessimistic. I should say it's not negative because I don't. <laughs> I don't believe that it's the end of the world, right? I mean, no, it's only the end of civilization. So where's the problem? Yeah, but that's stop, <laughs> some stuff needs breaking before you can build up that, again, that, right? That was exactly also kind of Tantra's perspective that he said it's not going to be the end of the world. No, it's only going to be the end of your current civilization. Where's the problem in the big, 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 big picture? Of course, it might be painful for the people who are living right now. Yeah, that's... No, but I think good things are happening as much as bad things are happening. Yeah. We overemphasize the bad. We forget True. the good. So yeah. there, don't forget the media bias. Yeah. Don't forget the, the sensation-seeking internet and Twitter and everything. Yeah. There's a tremendous amount of awesome stuff. And the thing is, to end with the maximum cliche, you know, be the change you want, you want to see in the world. In, <laughs> right. Because it, 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 it is, that's my point about growing. You just have to go out and do it. Nobody's going to do it for you. Right. All right. So, Thank that's, you so a, much. that's a nice optimistic point. Thank you very much. I thought this this was, serious. I mean, I say that sometimes, but this was really extremely interesting. One of Thank the you favorite so. conversations I've Thank had. Thank you for the invitation. It was, Thank it you was very a much. joy. Cool. Thanks. Awesome. awesome. All right. I hope you like this one. It's um, kind of uh, one of these topics. I I really like to explore the well, as you have you've heard before, we've had this episode with Joseph Tainter about complexity in society. I'm I'm worried that we are too complex and we can't change as quickly and deterministically and you know radically as we have to and so this was one of the topics i really wanted to explore and i thought this was a really insightful discussion i have other stuff coming up on this topic hopefully thank you igor for taking the time to be on the show um thank you to the hacker space where we met in den haag and uh, thanks to all of you for listening as usual please go to itunes and the usual places to rate and give us feedback and so on um <laughs> i always say it i sound bored when i say it but uh, i have to say it i guess okay um see you maybe at the barbecue go to omegathowpodcast.net slash bravo bravo quebec bbq and uh, hopefully meeting lots of you there um i think that's all i had to say um well, talk to you in about uh, 10 days to two weeks. Ciao. Hello, Markus here for Omega Tau. Omega Tau is an independent and non-commercial podcast produced by Nora Ludwig and me, Markus Fötter. We are on the web at omegataupodcast.net. You can also find us on Facebook, Google+, and Twitter under the handle omegataupodcast. We love to hear from you through a comment on the website, a post via our social network channels, or via an email at feedback at omegataupodcast.net. We also always appreciate recommendations of Omega Tau to your friends directly or through social media. Omega Tau is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, non-derivative license 3.0. This means that you can freely share the content, but you cannot use it for commercial purposes and you cannot distribute derivative works. You always have to attribute the source, omegathowpodcast.net. Any quotations or citations of our work are perfectly fine, of course. For more details on the license, see creativecommons.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast and talk to you next time. 
Tchau.